Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. This is the second of two interviews we're doing on policing and criminal legal reform in the United States. Uh, The first being the interview with James Foreman Jr. that came out earlier this week. I decided to interview Professor Jennifer Doliak because I'm a big fan of her podcast, Probable Causation, where she interviews social science researchers studying crime and crime prevention. I've actually recommended her show on here before uh, as an example of honest and detailed discussion with subject matter experts, something that used to be hard to find uh, in public until podcasts became as popular as they are now. Like all responsible social science researchers, uh, Jennifer shows a a great deal of commitment to scrutinizing the statistical methodology uh, that papers are using uh, to ensure that they're producing informative results rather than uh, simply misleading ones. I hope that she would have a lot to say on what good evidence is out there uh, regarding how we could best address some of the failures in policing and and law enforcement uh, that we see in the United States today, uh, and she didn't disappoint. I was uh, especially excited by our discussion of ways to prevent crime that don't involve police or the criminal justice system and all of the pathologies and uh, an enormous human cost that they bring with them. First, though, I just want to take a minute to provide some concrete numbers uh, regarding just how many people in the US uh, are in prison uh, and for what. If you'd prefer to skip straight to my conversation with Jennifer, uh, you can jump forward six minutes in your podcasting app. We've taken uh, most of these figures uh, out of a report from the Prison Policy Initiative uh, called Mass Incarceration, The Whole Pie by Wendy Sawyer and Peter Wagner. It includes some quite stunning charts that are are really worth seeing for yourself, Uh, so we'll link to it in the show notes. As James and I discussed in the last episode, uh, in recent decades, the US has had the highest incarceration rate of any country in the world uh, at around four times what's typical globally. Uh, One in every 110 adults is currently locked up. Uh, which comes to 2.3 million people in total. Uh, That is 1.3 million people in state prisons, 630,000 in local jails, and 225,000 in federal prisons and jails. That rate actually peaked at around 1 in 100 adults back in 2007. It will come as no surprise to anyone that uh, people of colour who face higher rates of poverty and, and many other social disadvantages are also dramatically overrepresented in the US's prisons and jails. These racial disparities are particularly stark for black Americans, uh, who make up 40% of the incarcerated population, despite representing only 13% of US residents. While 630,000 people are in jail at any given time, uh, people are checked into a jail 10.6 million times a year, uh, 18-fold as many as are checked into prisons. Just a heads up that prisons are where people are incarcerated uh, once convicted for lengthy sentences, uh, while jails are meant to be for those awaiting trial or serving shorter sentences. Jail churn is particularly high because around three quarters of people in jails actually haven't been convicted of any crime and and they may never be. Why are so many unconvicted people sitting around in jail? Uh, It's a combination of judges deciding that they're a danger to the public or that they might not show up in court uh, and those people not being wealthy enough to afford the bail that they'd have to pay to, to live at home until their trial. An estimated 13 million misdemeanor charges are made each year. Uh, which includes offences as minor as jaywalking uh, and as serious as stealing something with relatively little financial value. Low-level offences like that with penalties of under a year uh, in in jail account for nearly 25% of the jail population on any given day. Looking at everyone who actually has been convicted of a crime uh, and is currently incarcerated, uh, we see that 47% are there for a violent crime, uh, 19% for a drug crime, uh, 17% for a property crime uh, like theft or burglary, and 17% for a so-called public order offence like uh, drunk driving or weapons possession. So while drug offences account for the incarceration of almost half a million people, 
uh, and police make over 1.5 million drug possession arrests each year. Uh, Four out of five people in prison or jail are are locked up for something other than a drug offence. I was interested to learn that less than 9% of all incarcerated people uh, are held in private prisons, uh, which to me suggests that the private prison lobby uh, probably can't be such a big uh, driving factor behind mass incarceration. In the last episode, James Foreman Jr. said that the most common violent crime that people were locked up for was uh, robbery. And that was true up to 2016, but it's now actually narrowly in second place to uh, murder. How likely is someone who commits a serious crime to get caught? Uh, Here's one calculation that can give a rough sense. Uh, In 2017, uh, victims reported some 2 million uh, serious violent crimes, such as rape or sexual assault, uh, robbery, uh, and aggravated assault. In the same year, there were approximately 450,000 arrests uh, for these crimes. So even if all of those people were actually guilty, uh, the chance of being arrested for a serious violent crime uh, would seem to be at most 22%. Alternatively, we can look at what police report as the clearance rate by arrest. Um, This deals better with uh, an instance where one person is arrested on suspicion of multiple crimes at once, uh, but it misses crimes that occur but are never reported to the police. Uh, In any case, uh, using that measure, for the US as a whole, uh, we get a clearance rate of 46% for violent crimes uh, and 18% for property crimes. Let's talk for a minute about the length of sentences that people face for different crimes. There are many stories of people in the US receiving just astonishingly long sentences for relatively minor crimes. Uh, I heard one recently where uh, a person was given a life sentence for possessing about two soda cans worth of crack cocaine uh, because of a three strikes law in Oklahoma that mandated a life sentence for for any third conviction. Fortunately, after spending 15 years locked up, their their sentence uh, has now been recently commuted. Uh, But tragically, their, their daughter was young when they were originally locked up, and so they've completely missed seeing their child grow up. But while such cases are appalling and, and shock the conscience and, and they're far more common than they should be, it's important to keep in mind that they're not typical. Looking at a report on people leaving state prisons in 2016, uh, we see that the average time served for drug possession was 15 months uh, and the median uh, 10 months. For a more serious crime like robbery, uh, which is defined as the taking of property by force or using the threat of force, the average time served was uh, quite a bit higher. Uh, 4.7 years, uh, with a median time of 3.2 years. Scanning a few others, uh, the average sentence for nonviolent theft was 17 months. Drug trafficking, 26 months. Uh, burglary, also 26 months. Uh, assault was 30 months. Uh, rape or sexual assault was uh, 6.2 years. Uh, and murder, uh, 15 years. Adjusting for some sampling bias in that report might lead to estimates 5 or 10% higher, Uh, but hopefully the data is still giving us uh, basically the right idea. I took a quick look at how sentence lengths seem to have changed over time, and it looks like they were increasing up to about the year 2000, but have been fairly flat since then. I'll leave you to judge whether those sentences seem too high or too low, uh, but sadly those numbers suggest to me that we're not going to be able to end mass incarceration uh, just by commuting the most extreme and and perverse sentences out there. All right, I hope you find those facts and figures uh, provide some helpful background for this episode uh, and also the previous one with uh, James Foreman Jr. As always, we'll put up links to all of the sources that we've drawn on. Without further ado then, here's my conversation with economics professor Jennifer Doliak. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Jennifer Doliak. Jennifer completed her PhD in economics at Stanford and is now an associate professor at Texas A&M Department of Economics, as well as director of the Justice Tech Lab, a senior fellow at the Council on Criminal Justice, and a research affiliate at the University of Chicago Crime Lab. Her research focuses primarily on crime and racial discrimination, and her papers have investigated discrimination against African-Americans in online secondhand markets, the impact of ban-the-box policies, which are designed to help previously incarcerated people get jobs, and the impact of DNA databases on recidivism. 
She also hosts the podcast Probable Causation, which focuses on empirical research into crime and criminal justice. And it goes into social science research in a level of detail you can rarely find anywhere else, at least at least spoken, which has made me a big fan. And in fact, I've recommended that people listen to it on this show before. So all of that said, thanks for coming on the podcast, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Obviously, we're talking about uh, racial disparities and, and crimes committed by police uh, and, and crime in general at, at a pretty somber moment when they're very much in the news and, and very much on people's minds. I've had a bit of an amateur interest in this topic for a couple of years, uh, I guess, because, because frankly, it's pretty hard to look at the, the kind of injustices and, and cruelty that one, that one sees meted out in the US uh, criminal justice system uh, and, and not, not be outraged and, and drawn into following it uh, somewhat. Uh, that said, I'm, I'm not American and I don't live in America and this, this certainly isn't my, my area of expertise, uh, which means that there's a, there's a pretty good chance that I'm misunderstanding the situation in the US in, in some way and, and probably have some uh, pretty incorrect views on this uh, topic somewhere. Uh, so I'm hoping you, uh, you might be able to guide me through uh, this over the next couple of hours and, and also perhaps fill in the half of the audience that, that isn't from the United States and maybe is, is pretty out of the loop on these issues. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Fantastic. All right. Well, we'll get to talking about what evidence there is on, on the best ways to improve the US criminal justice system and how listeners might be able to contribute to that. But first, as always, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important work? So a bunch of things. I have, I have to like keep a list for myself of the projects I'm working on so I don't forget about things. So one project is with Anna Harvey, who's a researcher at New York University and Amanda Egan at Rutgers, looking at the impacts of prosecutor reform efforts. So, you know, we're currently focused on policing in the U.S. in this current, uh, current moment, but prosecutors had been a big focus of attention before this. And we are getting really amazing data from some prosecutor offices to understand what the role of prosecutors is and just sort of applying their discretion uh, in terms of who gets convicted or charged, I guess charged in the terms of, in the case of prosecutors with low level offenses and what the, the long run effect is on those individuals. And then the offices we're working with are actually ones that have been making pretty big reforms in, in what prosecutors are doing. And so we're, we're trying to figure out whether those reforms had the benefits they'd hoped for. Right. I guess apart, apart from that, People would have a, there's an explosion of interest in criminal justice reform just now. And imagine you're getting a lot of, fielding a lot of phone calls from people. Yeah. What are people asking? Are you getting calls from, is it just the media or like politicians asking, you know, what can we do? Uh, police departments calling you up, asking for advice? Yes, it is definitely an interesting moment. I mean, I think as someone who's worked in this space for a little while now, I, you know, the topic of police and police brutality and, you know, use of force and racial bias in policing has come up repeatedly over many years. But the momentum for change right now is really much, much bigger and and it seems to be lasting longer than than anything that I've seen in the past personally. And so there is lots of interest right now in figuring out what we can do and what both the evidence says, but then, you know, just trying to generate ideas and hypotheses that we can test. And so, yeah, talking with lots of journalists, talking with practitioners and policymakers and other researchers and everyone's, it's kind of an all hands on deck kind of moment where everyone's just trying to, I don't think anyone's happy with the status quo. Like even the police aren't happy with the status quo. So everyone is motivated to, to move us to a better equilibrium. All right. Well, yeah, let's launch into discussing specific problems with US policing and I guess how we got where we are. 
And after that, we can turn to kind of options for reform and how promising they look and how we might be able to actually get them into practice. Sure. And uh, yeah, as I said before, we started recording, um, you're kind of an empirical social science economics researcher. Uh, yes. And uh, <laughs> I suppose I'm keen to know what things we have really strong evidence for, where there's, you know, a smackdown paper that really uh, demonstrates something, at least for a specific case, but also just to get general impressions, even if there aren't papers to demonstrate those impressions. So I guess don't, don't be shy about editorializing, but I suppose label them as editorializing. <laughs> All right, to start with, yeah, can you give an overview of what you think are the biggest problems with U.S. policing and the criminal justice system as a whole as it exists today? Yes, that's a big question. Um, So there are many (laughs) problems. With policing in particular, I think the problems that are certainly at the forefront of everyone's minds right now are around the unnecessary escalation of incidents between community members and law enforcement. So maybe someone calls the police for help, but, you know, when they get to the scene, they wind up making an arrest that could have been avoided or they use force that could have been avoided. And, you know, in general, I think people would prefer less of that if it's possible. The other problem is related to racial bias in policing. And, you know, this isn't a problem that's specific to policing or the criminal justice system. We know that racial bias is a problem throughout society in the United States and certain, and, you know, lots of other countries too. And so this is a problem that is everywhere and we should not be surprised that it's also a problem in the criminal justice system. So I'd say those are the two big problems in, in the policing space that we're kind of trying to figure out how to solve. And then there are myriad ways that we might solve them. And so they kind of range from trying to hire better people, trying to train them better, trying to put better incentives in place. You know, there's lots of discussion about the role of the unions and how hard it is to to discipline or fire a cop that repeatedly exhibits bad behavior. There's just a lot. There's a there's a lot we don't know about how to do a lot of policing better. We you know even defining like what is a good cop, what exactly is it that we want police doing with their time? It's actually really a really difficult question, and certainly one that where the evidence doesn't have much to say to guide us. So there's a I mean there's just a lot in the policing space. Criminal justice more broadly, I mean, I think the, so I spend most of my own research time focusing on the issues of prisoner reentry, as well as the role of technology in in public safety. And both of those, those tend to overlap sometimes, sometimes not, but especially on the prisoner reentry side, you know, we have incredibly high recidivism rates in the United States. We do incarcerate and a sort of absurd number of people in this country, and they all, most of them get out at some point and, and want, we ideally would like them to reintegrate into their communities in a, you know, productive way. And we're not very good at that. And we, it's sort of appalling how little evidence we have to guide that effort to. So I did a study a couple of years ago on Ban the Box, which is a policy to try to help people with criminal records get jobs. And that got me really interested. You know, whenever I talk to policymakers about something that doesn't work, I and this and Ban the Box is an example of that, which we could talk about more later. I, I always want to come in with some suggestions about what else could work, right? So that it's not, I don't leave the conversation sort of like, well, it's this or nothing and this didn't work. So we all just throw up our hands in despair. And so I started digging into the literature and it was just really amazing to me how little we knew about how to, like what works in the reentry space. So I've done a bunch of work there and yeah, there's still, still a lot of open questions, but I'd say like, we don't, yeah, we don't have a good sense of how to reduce recidivism rates. We don't have a good sense about how to fix policing. There are a lot of things we don't know. Yeah. So I'm curious to try to, I guess, put some numbers on this so the audience can understand the scale of these different problems. I guess the police in the US kill around 1,000 people every year. It's like a bit over 1,000. And there's over 2 million people incarcerated in the US, which is several, well, many fold higher than most other rich countries and one of, the, one of the highest rates in the world. One thing I wonder is if 
the killing of people is kind of the tip of the iceberg of problems with US policing. You, you could imagine that there's just like assaults or harassment, or it's, it's, it's a very visible kind of tip of the iceberg because just like spectacular, very visible events that people end up talking about a lot. But I wonder, doesn't that, that the fact that police are able to do that, or that's a kind of, that's a not such an unusual practice, indicates that there might just be a lot of assaults, harassment that are occurring. And while each of those is much less bad, they could be much more frequent because people are able to get away with it even more than I guess uh, police are getting away with perhaps unnecessary killings. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. I think, you know, though it's been remarkably difficult to get high quality data on even the number of people that police kill every year. So the data that we do have basically come from efforts by media companies to or other nonprofits to collect statistics based on media reports of killings by police. And so, you know, you could worry that those are going to be undercounts, especially in certain places, you know, it doesn't make the news somewhere and then it doesn't wind up in that tally. So that's been hard enough. And that's a situation where, you know, there is someone who is dead and the police either killed them or they didn't. And it seems like a very easy factual thing to figure out. I think the FBI is, I think, announced that they're going to start collecting that information for police departments going forward in a more standardized way. So we will see if that improves. But I think part of the reason that we've been focusing on police killings is, you know, as difficult and as as difficult as it is to get that data and as inadequate in many ways as, as that data set is, getting standardized high quality data on any other sort of use of force is basically impossible. You can get data from an individual police department. So I have an ongoing project on police body. I've been helping Seattle, the Seattle Police Department, analyze the effects of their body-worn camera program. And so like, they have been providing data on use of force at various levels. And so, you know, working with it, with the particular police department, you can get that information. But there are thousands and thousands of police departments across the United States, and it's entirely decentralized. And so getting a standardized source of information like that is just on the to-do list, let's say. Yeah. Do you have a sense of how common I guess, harassment of people is by police or lower level assaults? No. Even kind of qualitative? <laughs> no, yeah. Nope. I, guess I, I read that when people had looked at racial disparities in behavior by police, that they found evidence of bigger disparities in harassment and assaults than in killings. Have you have you seen that result as well? So in general, it's it's somewhat challenging to to find policy effects or or to pick up strong, statistically significant differences and based on police behavior on the outcome of police killings, because, you know, while there are far more, more of them than we would ever want, they actually aren't that common by statistical standards. And so since it's a relatively rare event, again, in terms of the statistical power, it's just really hard to find any sort of significant effect there. And so the outcomes that you're able to detect effects on are usually much more low-level stuff. So there's a my favorite paper on racial bias in policing is by Jeremy West, where he basically uses car crashes on, on highways in Texas to look at the effects of state patrols, or racial bias by state patrols. So basically, you if you get into a car accident, then you call 911, and basically the closest officer is dispatched to the scene. And that avoids the problem that in general, if you just look at information or data on interactions between police and citizens, the police get to decide who they stop, right? And so there's a selection problem there that is really difficult to to get around in research terms. So in this experiment, he was looking at, you know, what happened if the officer that happened to be closest to you that was dispatched to the scene was white or black. 
And then basically what he finds is if it's a black driver and the white officer, you're much more likely than if it were a white driver to be written up for really low level stuff like an expired registration or an expired you know license or something like little low level stuff that, you know, is certainly verifiable. So you can't say it's what economists would might call statistical discrimination where they're trying to like guess about you, like it's either expired or it's not. But what seems to be happening is that they kind of give the white drivers a pass, but they don't give the black drivers a pass. And so I think there's, I think a lot of good evidence that dis- discretion over that kind of stuff is a place where racial bias can easily seep in. What he does find is there's no evidence of racial bias for like felony charges or something like that. And he argues that that's evidence of you know, that's a place where officers might expect more scrutiny. And so they don't have the power to use their discretion and, and apply to apply it in a biased way. And so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there's some growing evidence and it kind of depends on the context a little bit to really nail down and quantify the causal effect of, you know, the the race of the person that, that the police are dealing with on use of force and everything in between. But I'd be willing to to speculate here that in general, racial bias is a problem kind of throughout that spectrum. And it's really just a matter of, of quantifying it. And then, of course, the next step, which I and others have been, I think, really pushing for researchers to focus on more is what to do about it. How do we reduce that bias? Yeah. I guess another category of problem with the criminal justice system that I, that I thought up when I was uh, preparing for this interview is kind of enforcement of victimless crimes. I guess things that I don't think potentially should be crimes at all and the damage that that's done in that. I guess in particular drug laws stand out there. So it's so a drug prohibition, potentially people facing, you know, having their lives ruined by, by drug possession charges where I guess in my view that that, that, that shouldn't be a crime at all. Yeah. Do you have any quantification of how much damage is, is done through drug prohibition? Is this something that you've, that you've thought about? So... This is definitely something that comes up a lot. So in the U.S. now, a lot of states have legalized marijuana, for instance, in possession of especially smaller quantities of marijuana. I don't think we have any studies yet, not that I know of, of the impacts of decriminalizing marijuana possession on the trajectories of the people who would have potentially been convicted of that crime if the law hadn't changed. There's, you know, some, there's potential that, that you know, police charge people with marijuana possession when they're just looking for some low-level charge to get you on. And so if that is no longer an option, maybe they charge you with something else. And so it's actually, it's not obvious that this fixes lots of problems. But yeah, and I think the other, often it's, I think there's a general consensus or conventional wisdom, I would say, out there that a lot of people in prison are there for these sorts of victimless crimes and low-level drug possession. Most people in prison are there for serious crimes. And that would not actually like decriminalizing drug possession would not end mass incarceration in the United States. I see. Yeah. How, how much of a dent do you think it might make? Oh, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. I think some people have kind of, I feel like John Pfaff does a bunch of work around this and always has some good stats in this space, but like the answer is not much of a dent. <laughs> I see. I, like I, most, we, we have to basically, if we want to reduce incarceration rates in any meaningful way, we need to be dramatically reducing incarceration for violent offenders. It's interesting. I, I guess I, I hear instances, and I guess I've heard from people I know who've worked in the US legal system, uh, instances of people going to prison for you know, getting long sentences for drug possession charges or, or, or even drug dealing charges that don't have a violent component. Yeah. How, how is it then that that's not a significant fraction of the total incarcerated population? Well, so there are, there are certainly anecdotes like that out there and certainly more on the drug dealing side, I think, than the drug possession side for long, when we're talking about long prison sentences. But most people who get really long prison sentences are violent offenders. 
And there are a lot of them in the United States. <laughs> and so, so just when you look at the numbers, most people incarcerated at any given time are not there for drug charges. I see. Yeah. I guess maybe, yeah, maybe the people on drug charges are getting parole earlier. So perhaps they're, they're spending less. Also, like especially if we're talking about drug dealing, I mean, there's also a lot of violence that can be involved in that, right? So you might also wind up with violent charges. Charges as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I guess a different category of failure would be the failure to prevent crime. And I guess if you do international comparisons, it seems like the US has higher crime rates than other countries. And there's going to be a whole lot of factors that go into that. But potentially, the criminal justice system or policing just doing a bad job at preventing crime could be one factor. Is there any research on that? On Could, could the US reduce crime rates significantly if it you know, adopted better you know, international best practice? So I'm not sure we actually have higher crime rates in general. We have higher violent crime rates than most places. We also have a lot more guns than most places. <laughs> I'm always a bit reluctant to make international comparisons because you know countries are different for lots of reasons. And it's not necessarily that just the police aren't doing a good enough job here. I mean, I think we could have we could have a conversation about the ways in which they could be doing a better job, but I don't think that, you know, the differences between the US and Australia or the UK would be all about one one policy that's different or or something like that. I think there are obviously major cultural differences that are longstanding and harder to change. But yeah, I mean, I think in general, we definitely incarcerate more people in the US. And I think there's a general consensus in the research space at this point that, you know, basically, if you think about kind of, you know, from economics, we have this concept of diminishing marginal returns. So every additional, you know, the first person you put into prison, the serial murderer, you know, that you get a lot of benefit from that, right? You reduce crime a lot if you you put him in prison. But the second person that goes into prison, you get a little bit of less benefit and the third person. And so we're at the point. So by the time you go past the rate of incarceration that's typical in Western Europe to the rate that the United States has, you know, most of those marginal offenders probably aren't gaining as much in terms of public safety. And rolling that back a bit would probably actually have large benefits, in ter- at least in terms of on net. We, we pay a lot to lock them up and we're not getting any public safety returns out of it. There's also concern that for people on the margin like that, putting them in prison, it could actually be criminogenic in some way. It could make them more, more criminal crimes, rather yeah. than, than less. Yeah, it just like disrupts their, you know, if they had a job, they lose it, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Would you want to speculate about, you know, what fraction of that 2 million it would be sensible to release and if, if the U.S. could get to kind of an optimal incarceration policy? It's a big question. I'm not sure. Yeah, I feel like people ask me this every once in a while. And it's a really hard <laughs> question to answer. And <laughs> I mean, I feel like moving closer to the incarceration rates we see in Western Europe would be a good goal. I feel like you know, there are major cultural differences between the U.S. and Europe. And especially, again, I think the gun issue is one where we might we might wind up having higher incarceration rates in equilibrium. That might be the the socially optimum level. Like, But we'll see. I mean, I think as an economist and especially a, an economist who's very focused on policy, I tend to think very much on the margin. And I think, you know, pushing us in the direction of reducing incarceration is probably a good move. Knowing exactly what the optimal incarceration rate in the U.S. is, is, I think, a bridge we can kind of cross once we're closer to that that margin. Okay. Yeah, we'll return to a, a bunch of those problems over the course of the conversation. I guess let's, let's talk a bit about, yeah, uh, police violence, police brutality. Where do we know that people of different races are treated differently by police or courts and kind of how stark are the differences? And I suppose, yeah, how do, how do, how do we know or try to measure that? 
Yeah. So one way that we, so I can talk about a few studies. So one is the, that study by Jeremy West that I measured, mentioned earlier, looking at racial bias in the course of traffic fatalities and like how police deal with drivers when they arrive on the scene. There's another paper by Mark Hoekstra and Carly Will Sloan, where they look at the dispatch of of officers to 911 calls and it kind of uses a similar sort of strategy saying like, well, the people who are dispatched to the scene, it's going to be the people who, whoever, whichever officer was closest at the time the call came in. And so it's essentially random whether the person who shows up is white or black, you know, conditional on like neighborhood fixed effects or whatever. And so what they wind up finding is that white officers, especially when, when you're focusing on calls from black neighborhoods or minor or majority black neighborhoods, if a white officer instead of a black officer is dispatched, dispatched the scene, then they're much more likely to use force during the encounter. So that's a nice paper. I will say kind of on the flip side, Emily Weisburst has a paper using data from Dallas and a very similar strategy. And she doesn't find any racial bias in arrests. She was looking at arrests as the outcome. So I think that kind of highlights the importance of context and how this is going to vary from place to place and depending on what kind of outcome measure you're looking at. Let's see. We have a bunch of studies from the court context where people try to study this by looking at context where defendants are randomized to different judges for the bail hearing, essentially, where it's decided whether they get cash bail or whether they're detained pretrial, as well as the judge that would he actually hear their case. And so if you have, you know, randomly assigning people to be locked up or not is would be completely unethical, but randomizing people to different judges happens all the time. And it turns out that different judges vary dramatically in the propensity that they lock people up. And so randomizing people to different judges essentially randomizes them to a higher or lower likelihood of incarceration. And so we can use we can use the randomization across judges to see like if white and black defendants are treated differently. And they typically are. I mean, again, I feel like it's pretty standard and unsurprising to find evidence of racial bias in most settings. And so the question is really the extent of the racial bias to what extent it's coming from, you know, is it just like a few, a few judges, a few bad apples versus like the whole system. And then of course, the next question that I think is really the research frontier, which is what we do about it. Yeah. What do you think we've learned about criminality among police and police departments over the last couple of weeks? I guess I already had the impression that police in the US were kind of unusually lacks about following the law by, by rich country standards. But I guess watching just the, <laughs> the sheer number of videos of police violence against protesters, often seemingly organized as a, as a, as a group that, that's come out of the US, it's made me think that maybe the, the problem of kind of just police departments as a whole being kind of corrupt and not super interested in following the rules is is mu- maybe much worse than I, than I had thought. So I have never heard it framed that way before. I'm not sure I would label police behavior as actively criminal, I don't know if they if they beat if they assault protesters in a way that wouldn't be justified use of force. Isn't that kind of yeah. criminal behavior in the same way that it would be yeah. if anyone else did? So the challenge here, right, is how you define criminal. <laughs> and 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 unfortunately, like police, for better or worse, police have a lot of discretion in when to use force. And so, you know, the I mean, in the death of George Floyd, um, which was the the death that sparked all of these protests, the officer was actually, you know, arrested and and charged with his murder. And and I think it, that it's very difficult to to watch that video and interpret what the police officer did as anything that was remotely justified or necessary, you know, in order to defend himself or something. 
So, so sure. Yes. There are definitely examples like that where I think it's very easy to look at the video and say that does not seem justified. And then that would not be, if, you know, the courts agreed, then that would be outside the bounds of their, of their job description and would, you know, would be criminal. But, but again, please have broad discretion in in using their judgment to figure out what is justified and what isn't. And so that is something that is very much a topic of conversation right now is how do we change that? And, you know, I think a, a bigger a bigger issue here is kind of the role of police unions in this conversation and the extent to which the unions really heavily defend all officers, regardless of whether they seem like they're doing a good job on the force and should be defended. And so again, that is going to be that is a a big piece of the conversation right now is to what extent we can make it possible to fire bad actors in police forces. And that's very difficult to do right now. Yeah, because I suppose I'm, I'm using a more layperson's notion of criminality. Uh, <laughs> it's like maybe I'm not thinking about it strictly. Like if you apply, uh, what's, what's, what's the term? Where it's like police can kind of seemingly just do whatever they want and the courts will give them a pass. I suppose I'm thinking like maybe from a more, from a more, more moral point of view, or the common sense point of view about what what the, what the community would think is legitimate use of force. Yeah, I guess w- one thing that stuck in my mind from a few years ago is season three of the podcast Serial. They kind of went and looked at, into policing practice in Cleveland, and they chose Cleveland. I think not not because it was you know the worst police department or something in the country, but rather because they got unusually broad access to, to to the court building to to report on criminal justice there. And to be honest, I was just blown away. I guess as a non-American, it seemed to me like the the police in East Cleveland that came across as absolute thugs, and it seemed frankly more like a like an organ organized criminal organization than a law enforcement agency. I guess, yeah, did, did you get a chance to listen to that one? And did, yep. did you have any uh-huh. thoughts on it? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a reason that these stories are being elevated. I think they're really important and they need to be addressed. And there's a reason there's so much appetite right now in reform for reform in the United States. And I am fully supportive of that and look forward to, you know, helping to build police departments that, that are trusted by a, you know, if not everyone, then the vast majority of society, and that's not the case now. There are also a lot of police officers who are doing a really good job, you know, and in general, hiring more police officers does reduce crime. That does not mean that every officer is good or everything that officers do over the course of the day has a net social benefit. But I think it's going too far to say that all police departments in the United States are basically just like organized crime organizations. <laughs> like, <laughs> Sorry, no, no, no. like, you know, we've got some problems. We've got like major problems. I don't want to undersell this, yeah. but I think the reason that those kinds of podcasts are important and the stories are told is because that's not the, the standard narrative. And I think it's really important to point out to people who don't necessarily have negative interactions with police departments themselves, that lots of people do have negative interactions with police all the time. And so the tremendous value that the podcast serial did in that conversation was, you know, getting someone like you to say like, this is crazy. We need to fix this. Right. And so that's a tremendous public service, but I, uh, yeah, I shouldn't I think, think of it as typical. It's yeah, it's probably, I mean, a challenge here is figuring out what is, <laughs> what is typical. I mean, it's the data, data is so spotty and there's still so much we don't know, but yeah, not all cops are bad. I think it is yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair to say that not all cops are bad. Yeah. 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 So I don't, I guess I don't want to imply that. I suppose this is a non-American, maybe I'd come in with the assumption that like the vast majority of police are trying to follow the law almost all of the time. And I suppose the, the more I've seen of police behavior, the more I wonder whether they think of themselves much more than I thought as, as above the law and able to do what they want. Right. I mean, I, you know, I have to admit, like I, 
I try very hard both as a researcher and as a person to see both sides and like think about the pros and cons and play devil's advocate even in my own mind. And it's, it has been very difficult to watch the videos of the the police confrontations with protesters in recent weeks and be able to defend the police. Yeah, I think it's really, and I think that's part of the reason that the protests have been as large and as vigorous and, and have gone as they have been and, and have gone on as long as they have been because people keep seeing those videos and they're like, this is not okay. This is not the way the police are supposed to be interacting with the public. Yeah. Do we know how much misconduct is concentrated among a minority of, you know, particularly law-breaking officers or or maybe how much misconduct is concentrated in a, in a minority of, of police departments or districts? So we don't. So information on, on officer misconduct is one of those data sets that's really difficult to come by. You can sometimes get that information from individual police departments. So a number of police departments have tried in recent years to put together some like predictive algorithms to figure out based on past behavior, who is likely to to use force or kill someone or do something really bad that would really be a problem down the road. And from talk, most of those, those types of exercises are, you know, off the record and not public, but from talking with researchers. And there is one paper that's been published using data from Chicago. Everything I've seen and heard suggests this is very easy to do. You don't need some fancy machine learning learning algorithm. Like it's not a super difficult prediction. It basically previous complaints predict future bad behavior. And so then the question is just, you know, do the police departments currently have the power to do anything with that information? And the answer appears to be no. <laughs> and that's the sort of dismaying part that I think need, is going to be addressed in recent, well, I hope will be a, will be addressed in future, in the near future. You know, there are a few options. One is we just fire you after you get a certain number of complaints and say like, sorry, this is a really bad signal. And statistically, you're likely to go on to do bad things. So you're out. You're on some probation period or something and, and you just, you lose your job. I think, you know, that will be a higher... We might get to a system where we basically just expect more from our police officers. And like, there's this great Chris Rock sketch where he's basically saying like, you know, there's some jobs where everyone just needs to be good, like pilots. <laughs> you can't just like, okay, have Surgeons. pilots that occasionally crash into the mountains, right? Like you all need to be landing. And police are probably in that category too. You can't have some that are just out there killing people needlessly. Like that's not just not okay. And so maybe, maybe the answer here is just, yeah, you know, in a lot of jobs, just firing someone because they did, they made a couple mistakes would be, would seem harsh, but maybe with police officers, we're okay with that. The alternative is we figure out disciplinary procedures or additional training that can actually help people course correct and help, help people get on a better track and become a better cop. And that's something we just, because there's currently so little opportunity for police departments to intervene with those officers. We really haven't had much opportunity to evaluate what works in that space. Yeah. I guess it seems like you're saying that there's a, yeah, some jobs where it just everyone has to be good at it because right? it's not acceptable to have. <laughs> it's just too too disastrous if there's a really terrible staff member. It seems to me like police naturally, I would think, and I guess in Australia, I would hope that it's the case that they're held to a higher legal standard perhaps than just an ordinary person because they that they have training. It's their job to follow the law and enforce the law. And yet it seems like in the US that they're held to a lower standard of conduct than just a typical random person, or at least courts are so much more forgiving of, of their use of force or, or of, of misconduct on, the, on, their, on their part, when it seems like they should just be far more strict because they're, the police are able to know the law. Yeah. Well, so I, th- I think, again, this goes to the question of like what the law is, and they are legally given more discretion to use force. Like I don't have full discretion because it's not my job to try to hold criminals accountable and to like, you know, I think there's this general sense that 
we are hiring these people and trusting them to maintain law and order and, you know, arrest people who are doing bad things. And, and sometimes force is going to be necessary, especially if that person is that are themselves violent. And so I think there are going to be a lot of situations where it's, it's not going to be clear from the outside what you would have done in that situation. And so I think the spirit of the, the apparent laxness here is that, you know, if you, let's imagine we have a police force that we've, we've hired and trained well, and that we do fully trust. Some of those people are going to be applying, you know, they're, they're going to be in a, this is a very dangerous job and they're going to be in dangerous encounters and violent encounters. And in the moment, they're going to be doing the best they can. And sometimes it's, they're going to be using force and sometimes that will not work or it will appear too harsh from the outside. So then to, you know, later on go back and say, well, it looks like that was too much. And the, so we're going to fire you or something like that. You're going to wind up with a lot of officers that aren't going to want to go near anything that could possibly be violent because they're like, well, I can lose my job. You know, I'm putting my own life on the line here and I'm doing the best I can. And sometimes I'm going to think I need to use force, even if someone else might've done it differently. And if you're not going to back me up, then why on earth would I do this? And so the question is just where to draw the line. And I think the problem is it's, it's tricky to figure out where to draw the line in terms of what is a justified use of force there. And unfortunately in a lot of departments, it seems like they've drawn the line at the floor because they can't figure out exactly where to draw the line somewhere above, you know, the, the clear bad apples. And so, and then that creates a culture where everyone, you know, I, I'm saying the words bad apples and I also don't want to suggest it's just a couple of bad apples because yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of this is culturally pervasive, but I think that that contributes to that culture too. Yeah. I, I mean, it seems like the, yeah, this qualified immunity thing can go pretty far. I suppose I've, I've heard of a case where a bunch of police officers stole a whole bunch of property that they were meant to collect under because it was under warrant. And then the court gave them a pass on, under qualified immunity grounds because there wasn't a specific rule against literally stealing property to keep for themselves. I suppose it's like, <laughs> have you heard of that one? I, I have not heard of that case. Oh, okay, um, I think I, I guess uh, I'll, I'll find I'll find a yeah, link to I it. I mean, there I, are other issues around similar sorts of things come up a lot in the civil asset forfeiture conversation, where again, police have a lot of discretion to be able to seize property that has been used during the course of a crime or bought with the proceeds of a crime, or that they merely and suspect, right? They merely merely suspect, right? They don't have to prove it in any way, and so what you wind up. But then on top of that, the way that laws are currently written, police departments often keep the revenues that come from that. And so there's actually an incentive to go out there and seize assets. Sounds like theft. Not good. <laughs> yeah, it sure does sound like theft. Yeah, I think there's been a bit of a there's there's a, a push. There's been a push for a long time from many sides to fix that. But I think it's just, and I think that's also just an example where it's like, this is actually not a difficult fix. The incentives are clearly perverse here. Right. And so just don't let the police departments keep that revenue. And, you know, the challenge is we're just going to have to pay higher taxes in order to fund our police departments appropriately and fund the courts so that we don't have all the like fees and fines and civil asset forfeiture that they currently rely on to pay their bills. But that feels like a better system to me. Yeah. How exceptional is, is the United States in terms of its criminal justice system? So it's, it's very unusual in terms of its incarceration rate. Oddly enough, it actually has fewer police and spends less money on on police officers than than many other rich countries. 
I guess looking at international tables, it kind of the, the rates of police killings are, are much higher in the US than many other rich countries, but actually oddly lower than many Central and South American countries. Yeah, is there any? Do you want to say anything about like put, putting US in in, in a global context, crime and policing wise? Yeah, I mean, I guess you know this isn't like a super rigorous comparative analysis. It's not my <laughs> it's not my forte, but you know when we've had a bunch of studies coming out of especially Scandinavian countries because they have amazing data and there are all of these nice studies on the criminal justice system and what happens if you incarcerate someone or and so on using the very rich data from Sweden and and so on. And just recently there has been more research that's been coming out of Latin America. And I have been very happy about that because I think in many ways, actually, those criminal justice contexts are much closer to our own than the Western Europe contexts. And honestly, I think part of it is the gun issue. You know, we should probably expect in general that our police are going to be using more force because more people on the streets have guns. So, yeah. And I, and I think the incarceration system and just in, in a lot of ways, the Latin American context is closer to the U.S. context and can be more informative about U.S. policy than, you know, what's happening in Sweden. Yeah. I guess naively, you might think if you hadn't looked at crime stats that much before, or at least like violent crime stats before, you might think, well, it's going to be countries that are poorer that have much higher rates of violence. But I think if you look globally, it, it seems like cultural factors are, are much bigger, that, you know, Africa is a lot poorer, typically, or like many countries in Africa are a lot poorer than countries in the Americas, but they have lower violent crime rates. I mean, just just the Americas as a whole really stands out in, in its violent crime rate. It's much higher than you would otherwise expect. And then you have countries in, in Asia that just have phenomenally low crime rates. So you can, you can, it, yeah. <laughs> it's extraordinary. This is, it's extraordinarily how rarely people are murdered. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of that is, again, it comes down to culture, right? I mean, there's a, the U.S. is much more individualistic <laughs> than uh, a lot of Asian countries where it brings great shame on your family if you're convicted of a crime. And like, you know, we don't, that does, that's not the case in the U.S. And so, so yeah, I think that that kind of highlights a challenge with just comparing countries and and individual policies and saying, well, maybe it's because your police are different that you have higher violent crime rates. Like maybe, <laughs> but maybe we are just different, right? Like there's a real possibility here that the U.S. is just culturally different in a way that, you know, maybe we can change, but it's going to take a long time and that's not going to be like a policy fix. Yeah. Okay, let's move on and talk about possible solutions or, or improvements. Yeah, what possible solutions to kind of the, all of the problems that we've talked about so, so far are, are you most excited about? Are there any that are worth highlighting for the audience? Oh, good question. Yeah. So let's see. So there's a, a new study that just came out in PNAS that has caught my attention that I find myself talking about a lot, measuring the effectiveness of procedural justice training for police officers. So basically, it's like a one-day training, this program they put together, so not super extensive, but basically really just helping police officers and pushing them to to make the process of interactions with with citizens feel more fair (laughs) and to like leave the citizens with the feeling that they were heard and understood and, and they trusted, they trust the person who's making the decision that they kind of taken everything into account fairly, that they trust the process basically. So this program in general trainings aren't necessarily easy to measure the effectiveness of because it's could be a very selected sample who takes the training. But in this case, they needed to train all 8,000 plus officers in Chicago with this training. They couldn't do it all at once. So they basically had to do it 25 officers at a time once a month for many years. And, and they randomly assigned officers to particular 
times of when they took the training. So it wasn't just like, you know, the most senior people first, or volunteers first or something like that. And so the, what that leaves us with, is a really nice natural experiment where you can compare the behavior of officers who took the training earlier to officers who took the training later and then measure in that way what the impact of the training is on behaviors. And the behaviors that they were looking at were things like complaints received from citizens and use of force by officers. And they found that this one-day training program that officers just took once pretty dramatically reduced both complaints and use of force and significantly. And that was on average across all officers. And I have a hunch that if they were to you know, zero in on just the officers that had used more force in the past, maybe they would see a bigger impact for those officers because you're going to have a lot of zeros in there that kind of water it down. And it also seems like the sort of thing that repeated training could be helpful for. So I think there's still more experimentation to be done there, but it's, I think, a really nice example, both of a program that police departments should be trying, but also that staggered rollout design that they used just because of capacity constraints, right? They couldn't train everyone at once. That's going to be a problem a lot of police departments are going to face in any sort of new training program. So using a similar staggered rollout design where they just randomize who goes first and who goes second, who goes third, I think is a really nice model for implementing new training programs in a way that then allows us to measure whether they're effective. So I really like that study and I, I think that the approach is promising. Yeah, that's the kind of intervention that I would expect would have no impact. It's like take people for a totally. one day. <laughs> so others absurd. are left in like really up on procedural justice for a long time. And I've always been so skeptical. And I have to say there's another study, a much smaller study that had been done in Seattle with their police department on another procedural justice training program. And, you know, a small sample and like there were some issues there that just kind of made the analysis tricky, but they also found big beneficial effects. And it was like, well, let's wait for a bigger scale up. And then this study came along and it's like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe there's something here. <laughs> I'm always happy to be wrong in that direction. That is the best case scenario. <laughs> Completely. I mean, let's say that that result was true and it replicates in, in, in other contexts. Because what does that show that you can take officers for a day and tell them not to be terrible at their job <laughs> and, it, well, and right. explain to them like things that you think would have been taught during the process of training police officers to begin with. That's like very fundamental to their job and that this can have such a big impact on, on their behavior. I mean, that, that's why I would have been skeptical as well. To begin with, like to get anyone to change their behavior systematically with one day training seems very hard. There's not a great record of that. And then also you think surely they've been told this before. Uh, <laughs> well, so, so I think the I think that the issue is that maybe they hadn't been they haven't been told that before. So I think the more standard approach to policing is kind of a command and control approach, where it's like the police officer is in charge. It's very similar to sort of a military sort of approach. And so if you enter any sort of scene and you're like, well, I'm the one in charge, and you follow my orders, or you're disrespecting me and you're out of you know out of line, and then we have to do something with you, that's a very different way of doing your job than going in and saying like, hey, I want to hear everyone out and I want to make sure everyone has a chance to have their say and here's how I'm going to make the decision and is everyone okay with that? <laughs> you know, and so just getting, I mean, you know, there's a, you know, a day isn't that long, but it's long enough to not only do that, but also do some role playing and think through and like practice how you would do this in different scenarios. And yeah, it, it appears that for many officers, that's enough to get them to try it. And then, you know, if you try it and you're like, wow, that went way better than it usually does, then you're going to keep doing it, I would imagine. So yeah, I think it probably says a lot about how badly the way that we usually train cops to approach these incidents goes. Yeah. 
So I haven't had a lot of interactions with cops in the UK or Australia, but I guess I've heard at least in the UK, they have a pretty different mentality than the military control one that I guess the term they use is kind of community policing. I'm sure it's far from perfect, but that they view themselves more as people who are meant to help and guard people and and not necessarily boss them around quite so much. Yeah. Do you know of any reliable research on yeah the different cultures of police departments in different places or around the world? I don't, not necessarily in sort of like, you know, kind of a cross, cross culture comparison sort of thing. There probably, there probably is. And I just don't know. It's not in my orbit, but you know, this issue of community oriented policing is one that comes up a lot. I think the challenge with that and studies in that area, that's everyone kind of has their own definition of what that means. (laughs) Like ideally, I think the idea we have in our heads is a cop who just knows everybody and is like, you know, lives in the neighborhood, super friendly. But when you think about like, okay, well, how exactly are you training an officer to do that? Like, what are they supposed to be doing over the course of their day? You know? And it's like, then different, different places are going to have different procedures and that sort of thing. So we kind of all have in our minds, the image of the ideal police officer, but how to train people to become that officer, the approaches could differ and they do differ. So it's kind of hard to study. Okay. Well, I'll ask you for yeah, what, what possible solutions are you excited about? And you gave me an amazing answer the first time. So I'll ask it again. Are there any other- <laughs> another, all right. Another, another potential solution. So another one where there's at least some evidence actually comes from the 1970s when a bunch of court mandates required police departments to hire more black officers and more female officers. And researchers have used those court-mandated affirmative action orders as a natural experiment to measure what happened when uh, for departments that were required to make these changes. And it turns out lots of good things happened. So victimization of Black residents fell, apparently because Black residents trusted the police more to, to help, but they actually were more likely to report crimes and stuff <laughs> because they trusted the police department to take them seriously. We see a very similar thing for the for female officers. So women are more likely to report domestic violence, for instance, when there are more female cops on the force. And you, you see intimate partner homicides fall. So the most serious outcome of a domestic violence case happens less often. So suggests that the the officers are actually able to do something. And so, you know, in this broader conversation about like, well, how do we, in my mind, so much of this conversation is about trust. Like how do we build trust between communities and, and law enforcement again, increasing the diversity of the force again, back in the 1970s and kind of early eighties seemed to have been successful in that way. So does that mean that increasing diversity now could be just as successful? Maybe, you know, I mean, I think it's obviously a different context, but it is definitely something that seems promising enough to pursue. And the hard part here is then how exactly do you go about that? And, you know, in the United States right now, most police departments are, have a really hard time recruiting. You might not be surprised to find that lots of people aren't that excited about being a cop right now. Uh, It's not the most prestigious or um, appealing job (laughs) at the moment. And so, so, you know, when you have a limited pool of applicants, it's really difficult to be choosy <laughs> to make sure you have more of one type on the force or more of the other. And so I've, I've become interested in, there are a few places that have been doing experiments with how they recruit and what kinds of messaging and, you know, flyers distributed to re- residents so that it might be targets for recruiting or, or so on. So, yeah, so I think there's a lot of work to be done to try to, I, I well, I personally think that one really helpful approach could be to you know, find ways to make the job more appealing and draw a bigger pool of potential applicants to the job so that then we can be, we have the power to be choosy about who we actually hire and put on the force. And then when someone does a bad job, we have 
more power to fire them also because we have people to replace them, right? And so, yeah, so when we're thinking about increasing diversity or in any other way, sort of improving who becomes a cop, figuring out ways to recruit a big pool is going to be key. To what extent is the police force now more representative in terms of race and gender? I assume in the past it was, you know, very white and male, but yeah, how's it changed? And I think in general it still is, <laughs> but it's better than it used to be, <laughs> I okay, think is yeah. the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any other policy reforms that, that you're excited what about? Else? I mean, I think there are huge conversations to be had about increasing accountability. And, you know, we've sort of been dancing around this for most of the conversation, but the role of unions here and the how difficult it is for police departments to fire people who aren't doing their job effectively, that, you know, clearly needs to change. It's sort of amazing to me that we have any industries at this point where even if you do a terrible job, we just can't get rid of you. It's just, it's just, yeah, it's just especially nuts, in, especially, especially for in it to this, be this one. Yeah. Especially this one. Yeah. Right. Why, why can't I just be like, if you're a bad cook, then you don't get fired <laughs> rather than, yeah. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I do think that there is, you know, we've kind of had a similar conversation in teaching and education in the United States. And I think there are probably models there about, you know, how do you incentivize some teachers to be willing to sign a contract that is instead of saying like, you know, you have complete job security and we will defend you no matter what you do and we're going to pay you $50,000 a year, we'll pay you $100,000 a year. But if you don't do a good job, you're fired, you know, and like pay increases are merit pay only or so, you know, like, so finding ways, and I'm not an education person, so I'm probably, you know, dramatically oversimplifying and probably getting part of the, that edu- <laughs> the education model wrong there. It's my general sense of the kinds of conversations that have happened around teaching. And I imagine that a similar kind of conversation in policing would be helpful, but I think there's just a huge amount to do in that space. Yeah. There's this preprint going around, which is kind of claiming to show that the formation of police unions in the 50s significantly increased killings by police, maybe something like around 10% without reducing crime. I guess potentially if, if, if that's the case, if we can measure that, then uh, it might have also increased you know, other violent actions by police even more or other police misconduct by, by preventing accountability. What, yeah, what, other, what studies do you know of that there have been of, of, of the impact of police unions? And I guess, is there any research on to what, to what degree they're an impediment to any of these reforms that, that we might want to implement? Yeah. So there are three studies that are on my radar. One, the one that's been published is, I think, I think it's been published. There's at least a paper online <laughs> by John Rappaport and some colleagues at the University of Chicago Law School, where they were looking at a court decision that allowed, I think, sheriff's departments to have collective bargaining rights in Florida. And so then they use police departments as the comparison group because they had had those rights all along or yeah, just it didn't change at the same time. And they found detrimental effects of basically being allowed to unionize for the sheriff departments. I forget exactly what outcomes they were looking at. Then there are two working papers that I actually haven't seen the actual papers for in either case. I don't think they're online yet. The one by Jamie and Cunningham and, and Rob Gillazoo has been talked about a lot on Twitter. Rob posted a Twitter thread that kind of talked about the findings there, but I, I don't think they have a working paper online yet. If they do, I haven't read it yet. I, I don't think it's there yet. There's another one by Felipe Goncalves, where there's also, I think he's close to posting a working paper online. I've, I've gotten a sneak peek at it, but it's also not circulating. Yeah. So I think the Jamie and Rob paper and that the paper from Florida both find detrimental effects of unions. I think Felipe's, we'll see when that one comes out, what kind of the final answers are. They might be a little different (laughs) based on my sneak peek. So I think there's still some open questions here. 
qualitatively, I mean, we've got lots of good ideas here, potentially, or there's lots of papers suggesting ways that things could be reformed and could be better and could improve police performance. But I guess my impression just from seeing what people have to say in, in the media and elsewhere is that police unions might not be into this and they have a, an awful lot of clout, including over politicians, and that they might be a pretty big impediment to reform. And maybe if you don't tackle this at, at the root, then we're going to have a hard time getting up things that even maybe a, a vast majority of the population support if, if the police union is opposed to it. And I guess also, I mean, it was interesting to learn that... Um, Police always weren't always allowed to unionize in the United States. So there was a, a time when that was not typical, when states didn't permit that, and that we saw these changes in behavior after that that became permitted. So potentially, that's one thing that we need to roll back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this I completely agree. This seems like the conversation that needs to be had. In my mind, it is entirely a political conversation. You know, there are, it's a question of to what extent they have bargaining power relative to the cities they're negotiating with and to what extent their bargaining power is lower now than it used to be in the past. I suspect it's going to be lower now than it used to be in the past, but... What's, what's that? Just given all of the current movement to, to change right. and the anger at police departments and police officers. I mean, I think, you know, there are examples of, I think in Camden, New Jersey, they had like disbanded their police department and just built up a new one. And I think, and that seems to have been quite successful. And I think part of the reason for that is, you know, they basically essentially just broke the union, right? Like they, they had they ripped up the contract and, and started from scratch. Dip, yeah. They ripped up the contract and started over. And so, you know, I, I think other cities that wind up taking, I think that is certainly part of the conversation right now that, that cities might just disband their police departments and, and start over. And so that is one way to get around the union. And that is a way to like, if that's on the table now, yeah, that um, changes then that who has alone leverage. reduces the bargain, the union's bargaining power. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, I, I, completely agree that that feels like the major constraint on most of these conversations, but I am not an expert on politics and that, and that is, you know, we don't have studies on how to, how to get unions. So maybe there's is a game theory question. I don't know. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Different department. All right. So we, we've talked about a, a couple of positive reforms there and I, and I want to get back to more positive uh, policy reform ideas, but let, let's talk for a minute about what kind of proposed solutions do you think are out there being promoted, being circulated? Do you think are kind of shown not to work or at least not as proven as people think or, or for whatever reason are less exciting to you than maybe than to others? Yeah. Well, so one type of reform that was a really big deal in the wake of the last time <laughs> we had this conversation and there was great momentum for reform and greater accountability for police officers was increasing the use of body-worn cameras. And so at this point, there have been, you know, unlike most things in the criminal justice space, there's actually quite a bit of research on the effectiveness of this program. And there are over a dozen randomized controlled trials at this point, testing the effects of giving cameras you know, to some officers and not others, or, you know, everyone on the, a certain shift gets a camera, but not other shifts as a way to measure what the impact of body-worn cameras is on officer behavior. And the hope here was that, you know, if the hypothesis is that officers know what they're doing is wrong, but they know they can get away with it, then filming, then recording everything that they do might give them pause and make them not do the things that we, we don't want them doing. And so, so we have all these randomized controlled trials now, and basically on net, they found null effects. So in some places, they seem somewhat helpful in terms of reducing complaints and reducing officer use of force. In other places, they actually make things worse and force goes up. <laughs> I, I remember um, when I first saw those results and uh, yeah. I, was, I was very surprised. I would have put money on it helping. It working, yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah, and the, the first big study like this in the United States was done in Washington, D.C., and they just found no effect on anything. And so there are a couple po possible reasons for this, right? So one is, 
especially in the current context, every cop assumes they might be on camera all the time anyway, because everyone's got cell phones and there are cameras everywhere, you know, off businesses and whatever else. And so they were already treated and extended to the extent of having their behavior filmed. Another possibility is, you know, the hypothesis about, you know, the officer decision-making in that moment is wrong. It's not necessarily that they're like, well, I know I don't need to use force here, but like I want to anyway, and nobody's going to notice. It might be that most force is used because police are legitimately afraid. And that could be a training issue, right? Like we should, you know, maybe they shouldn't be afraid and we, you know, there are other ways we could help them figure out how to deal with that situation. But if they're using force because they're legitimately afraid for their lives, then putting a camera on them isn't going to change what they do, right? They think they're doing the right thing in the moment. The other, the other possibility is that, you know, we now have all this footage, but because of the, you know, we've been having this conversation about how we can't fire anybody. There really isn't much accountability. You know, you, we've got the, the footage and it might wind up being leaked to the press. Maybe honestly, it's probably more likely that a, a cell phone video will go viral and be released than, than body worn camera footage. But if ultimately like nothing's really going to happen to you, except that you're in the news for a few days, then it's still not, it maybe doesn't provide a strong an incentive to, to be on better behavior than we would like. Yeah. Interesting. I guess I think I saw you recently tweet a paper that suggested a more positive result from from body cams. There was actually, so I have still haven't had a chance to read it closely, but there was another RCT in Las Vegas which seemed to find beneficial effects. So you know, add that to the list. But I think, like at the very least, we can say this is not going to solve the problem. I think a lot of police departments really felt pressure to do something the last time we had this conversation, and of course there were some private firms that were happy to step up and sell them a product. <laughs> and so, and body worn cameras are actually like the cameras themselves are cheap. It's the storage cost for all the video that's extremely expensive. So departments are paying a lot of money for this and that can be fine. We can just want it in case we need the footage for some sort of case down the road. But if the hope was that if we're doing, if we're spending all this money because we think it'll change officer behavior, it does not seem to be a, a slam dunk on that outcome. Yeah. There's a police reform organization that many people might have heard of called uh, Eight Can't Wait, which has been promoting a kind of a eight point platform of stuff that sounds pretty sensible to me, like, a, I guess, banning chokeholds and strangleholds, requiring police to engage in de-escalation, re- requiring warning before shooting, requiring comprehensive reporting of use of force. I guess I, I think I saw you on Twitter suggesting that perhaps they might be overstating the degree to which there's strong evidence that, that these approaches will actually work. Is is that right? And and maybe do you have any uh, intuitions about whether whether they they would work? So I agree that most of those moves seem totally sensible. <laughs> I think honestly that's the way they should have sold this whole agenda is say like here are some great ideas. Did you know that some places allow officers to do this? Maybe that's about you know we should stop them. The problem is that they sold it as an evidence based, data driven. They basically said like data. I think believe the the phrase was data proves that these eight changes will reduce police killings by seventy percent or something and. People like me, of course, see something like that and I'm like, wait, where's the study? Like, that's amazing. You know, so I look at the study and it's just, you know, I, I don't want to undersell the tremendous work this group did. I mean, they they managed to catalog a whole bunch of policies across cities and states. And like, that's that's really hard work. And so that was a tremendous service. But then they basically just compared, they just did a kind of the raw correlation between, well, let's look at places that have that ban chokeholds compared to places that don't. And it's like, oh, the places that don't have fewer killings. And so then they attributed that difference to the difference in policy. But like, if you think about, you know, 
there are likely under other underlying differences between those places. And so I, you know, I imagine sometimes you're like comparing San Francisco with rural Alabama and, you know, maybe it's the chokehold dam that made all the difference, or maybe there are other differences between those two places. Right. And so, you know, researchers, you do not need an RCT to be able to measure causal effects, but you do need something better than that. (laughs) And so I just, you know, as a researcher, I recognize the appeal of being able to say that your solution is evidence-based and data-driven. Unfortunately, we see that those words used so often in contexts where I think the evidence is quite weak and it gets to the point where those words don't mean anything anymore. And so that is something I like push back on strongly. If, If your case for these policy changes is just you think they're good ideas, then make that case but don't pretend it's evidence-driven because that claim is false. And then so, you know, I said that, other researchers have said that. I think the per- one of the people involved in A Can't Wait actually just resigned earlier this week. I mean, they have stepped back. Oh, over this week. issue? Or? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, okay. over the overselling. I think it's just a cautionary. I mean, in some ways, like I don't wish harm on them, but like I do think, I, I guess I am somewhat gratified that people did push back and said, actually, it's not okay to oversell evidence. Like that is, I hope, I hope we hold people to that standard more often. So yeah, I mean, I think it's a cautionary tale of about overselling evidence as the basis for whatever reform you're proposing. Like this is a space where we basically have no evidence. (laughs) We know so little about what's going to work here. And so most of the stuff that we're going to want to try, we're just going to want to try because it seems like a good idea and that's going to have to be enough. And that's fine. And so, you know, go do things that seem like a good idea, but my pitch then would be also be humble about the likelihood that that's probably going to fail. So just be prepared to evaluate and, and change course if it doesn't work. Right. So I, I push for the evaluation and evidence after the fact, I think pretending that we're going to have the, that we have the answers now, or that we should be basing all, all policies on evidence in a space like this. It's just like, it's just impossible. We can't. Yeah. I guess I, I feel like I want to stick up for A Can't Wait a bit. Great, go for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose, well, one thing, I mean, I've been following Samuel Singyangwei, who I also invited to, to come on the show. Unfortunately, he's, uh, I think, swamped with with other work right now. So it's maybe one day. Yeah, well, what can I say? Well, I suppose one thing is even doing the those those crosswise comparisons is a lot better than a lot of other social science that I see. <laughs> it's almost like a higher standard of evidence, even though I guess it doesn't really uh, give, I don't think it really brings you causal You're identification. reading the wrong studies. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm reading older studies as well. I guess I feel it's, and I worry about doing this myself, it's easy to get up on your high horse about accuracy and, and precision and kind of this technocratic stuff like this, when it's it seems like taking that approach maybe just doesn't galvanize people in the same way. It doesn't bring people out to the streets. It perhaps is harder to build a movement. You know, it's, it's very important to have, I guess, policies that you know work, but then it's also very important to be able to get things implemented. And perhaps, you know, and campaigners, activists, they kind of bring a different skill set, a different approach, a different mentality to things. And I, and I agree that they, they shouldn't oversell that way. But I think, and I guess I see this with almost any mass, so whenever anything becomes a mass movement, the evidence and the way that people talk about things falls below the standards of an economics PhD seminar. <laughs> uh, people start becoming a lot more more lax. But I think that that's just an inevitable step in the path of a movement becoming massive, which in this case, it seems like it that's something that's going to have to happen in order for any of these things to actually happen. It's not enough to to, to just have people who are very into the social science and will read the papers to to be excited about these things. Yeah, I suppose I'm, I'm not sure exactly where I'm going, but I, but I feel... <laughs> Look, I mean, I'm, I I spend a lot of time working with policy folks. I've been working with the Council on Criminal Justice, and I'm usually the only researcher in the conversation. And so, like, I spend a lot of time talking to people who are like, yeah, 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 your fancy studies with identification strategies are nice and all, but, like, 
that is never, it's just not going to be part of the conversation most of the time. And so I'm, I'm aware that that is an exceedingly high bar and, and needs to be adjusted. I think what I would, I would rather that organizations just be like very transparent about what they can and can't show. So in this case, I think it would have been totally fine if they'd said, did you know that places that have chokehold bans have, you know, this rate of bad behavior and places without chokehold bans have this rate? Just tell us what the data say. It was the very strong statement that of the causal effect that, you know, made me upset, but also made a whole lot of non-economists upset. Like there were, and I think, partly because it was just so easy to see through. It was just, you know, it didn't take a PhD in economics to see that they didn't actually prove this. And I, I guess, the, you know, the reason I get riled up about this isn't just that, you know, I'm an economist, this is my bread and butter, and like, you know, this is what I do all day. But I do think there, there's real danger in overselling research and saying the research proves X because we're living at a time when I think expertise is often undervalued and ignored. And I think the danger here is that you you say like the research shows this will work. The research shows implement these eight policies and deaths will fall by 70%. You go do those things and it, if it doesn't work, then everyone's like, oh, research is useless. I told you we shouldn't be listening to researchers, you know? Or, and it's like, or, or this problem so, can't be solved. Or this problem can't be solved, right? We should just all go home because we tried. We tried the best evidence-based approach. The data proved it. And yeah. So I would rather us all just be very transparent about what we are showing and what we're not. And and frankly, call out the advocates when it is. I totally agree. This is a thing that advocates do. <laughs> but I guess what I'm saying is they shouldn't be doing it. And we should call them out on it when they do it. And so and like, and I think if we care about finding solutions that work, then we should, you know, be pushing for evidence-based solutions, but we should insist that that term means something. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure out what, what my views are on this, <laughs> but I feel like there's, there's something where I'm like not agreeing with, I guess, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of people who I, who I follow on Twitter or a lot of, a lot of my friends. Maybe I first started to have this feeling with the extinction <laughs> rebellion, climate change stuff last year, where I saw a lot of people who would point out, you know, the things that were being said at these rallies or the things that were being said by activists that were not quite right. I guess ex exaggerations of, you know, how bad climate change might be or you know, proposing policies that that aren't the best or like aren't going to be the most cost effective. And I guess I wanted to stick up because I'm like, these people have managed to build a huge movement to solve this problem that you think is really bad. <laughs> and it's just not possible, I think, to get so many people out on the streets and to build such a broad-based movement without the intellectual standards going down. And you're always going to be able to say, once you get these big protests, once you get so many people newly interested in something, people who, you know, don't have PhDs, maybe didn't, didn't go to university, haven't thought about the social science, haven't thought about the cost effectiveness of different technologies. Necessarily, it's, it's going to, it, you're always going to be able to say, oh, look at all these silly things that they're saying. And I guess I feel like I, I, I want to kind of steel man the, the position that they're making and say, well, that there kind of has to be a place in as much as we need a broad-based movement in order to get policy reform, then we just have to accept that there's going to be a stage that we go through where there's lots of dumb things being said, lots of false things yeah. being said. Yeah, but I mean, but this wasn't a situation where like someone had this written on a poster board that they were holding up, you know, like this was the leaders of this organization. <laughs> and I think so like one of my favorite threads about this was by Eve Ewing, where she was like, you know, somewhere late in the thread, it was like every thread was just this scathing, like I, you know, was very thankful to her, especially because she's not an economist and she was also offended by this. But she had a couple of tweets about, it's like, they, you know, they were in a position to know better. I think they, the flip side of what you're saying, in some way, when you build a broad-based movement, yeah, you're going to get more of those people out there holding up the signs that might not be quite right. But it also means that the people who are leading the movement have resources and have 
volunteers with skills to know. And, and so in this case, I think Eve said something like, you know, you just got all this data, you had, had this data for years and you've gotten all this money. You should have used that money to like hire an RA, <laughs> you know, to like, who knows better. And so I think that that's the point where I, I completely agree that building movements is an incredible skill. And like that, I do not want to sell that short at all, but I do think it's fair to expect the people at the top to, um, to, to be being more careful about what they're putting a little more careful about, yeah, the facts that they're putting out about stuff like this. And, you know, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I just, ultimately, I think this is just about being honest about what your case is, you know, like ultimately like the best case for the reforms they're pushing is not the evidence. It's something else. So make a sincere case based on what, why you're actually pursuing these things. And I guess I would like to think that that would be effective. Okay, uh, let's let's push on and think about other solutions that you may be uh, more excited about. I think there's stronger evidence on. Yeah, talked earlier about yeah, uh, ending drug prohibition, reducing lengths of prison sentences. I guess well, one thing about ending drug prohibition might be that there'll then be less interactions between police and, and the public or less harassment, less, less, less searching people for, for drugs, less dealing with people who might not be super keen on the police and, you know, things, things might escalate even though there was like no, initially not no serious crime committed. Do you have any thoughts on whether that could have a, a big impact? Yeah, it might. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it might. Okay. I, mean, I, yeah. think, I think ultimately, like, so I, I actually have a student who's working on this issue. I know, I know some others who are. I mean, I think there, there are reasons that it might, it might have the benefits that you're describing, and there are reasons it might do nothing. In the sense that, like, you know, if officers are just looking for something to like get this kid off the street, then they're going to charge you with whatever. And if it's not this, it's They'll hassle them for jaywalking. Yeah, exactly. It'll just be something else. And so I think the there are people who are kind of using some policy changes in this area as a natural experiment to see what actually happens to arrests and charges and that sort of thing to see if it actually does help people and and who it helps, right? It might not be equally distributed across the, the population. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned earlier this this option of just disbanding a police department and, and, and rebuilding it from scratch, which is something that a lot of people are talking about just now. I guess, yeah, intuitively to me, it kind of makes sense that once an organization reaches a particular level of dysfunction or of like having a bad culture, and maybe maybe the only way that you can make it work good again is to is to just get rid of it and start rehiring people from from the ground up. There's this instance in in Camden in, in New Jersey. Do you have any other evidence or experience or <laughs> common sense on that question of whether that's that's a good way to go? I don't. I mean, I think the reason Camden's gotten so much attention is they are probably the only example of it happening in the past. I mean, this is this is where we run into issues of like, it's only possible to have evidence on the effectiveness of stuff that's actually been tried before. And even like one city doing it, you know, it's basically like at best an event study, right? There's no way to have a control group then. And so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of venturing out into the unknown here. Maybe there are examples from other, other policy spaces. I mean, maybe like, you know, schools again, it's another place where unions unions have sometimes sometimes been resistant to change. So that's why I keep going back to them as a potential model here. But I think there's just a lot we don't know yet about what's going to be most effective. Yeah. Okay. How about uh, yeah, replacing police with with non-police responders? Uh, something that quite a lot of people are, are talking about, saying you know police aren't really suitable for handling you know people with mental health problems necessarily. People who are just uh, who, who are taking drugs. Bringing in someone whose whose mentality is one of kind of command and control and carrying a gun maybe is a bad idea. So instead, we need to have more social workers or, you know, health workers who should be answering these calls instead. What do you think of that? I think it's another thing that would be really interesting to try. 
I think, yeah, so there's, uh, when I was working with the lab at DC, they were actually doing a, an interesting experiment that I think, I just looked up the other day and I think the experiment is concluded, but they haven't put the results out yet, where they were actually, a slightly different context, but they were trying to reduce the number of ambulances that they sent out for medical calls that were like the person did not need to go to the ER, like it was actually not an emergency. And so what they were experimenting with was so sort of a you know parallel kind of context there, right? Like reserve the, in this case, reserve the police for really serious real crime situations versus just send them out for every, every call. And so in that case, it was reserve the ambulances for real emergencies. And so what they did was they set up sort of a, a triage system where the dispatcher taking the call, once it was, it was designated a medical call, they would ask them a series of questions. And then if it seemed like they needed an ambulance, they sent them an ambulance. But if it didn't, they would connect them with a nurse that was kind of waiting, you know, an alternate dispatch system sort of, so they could talk through whatever it was with the nurse. And maybe the nurse would arrange an, an Uber or something to an urgent care clinic instead of, instead of the emergency room. And so because, you know, they, they were capacity constraints initially, they weren't quite sure this wasn't something where they could just like switch over overnight to this new thing. They only had so many nurses and so on. So it actually allowed them to test what the effectiveness was. So they set up a system where every medical call that came in for 911, they randomized to either business as usual and you just get an ambulance or you go through this triage process and they ask the questions and then you either get an ambulance or get sent to the nurse. And so the results we're waiting for are like what the impact was. Like, does this lead to better health outcomes and, and so on? for the, uh, the folks who, you know, didn't need the ambulance in the first place. And so you could imagine setting up something similar in this policing context where like for the, the calls coming in for police, you randomly send some just to the police, but then, you know, as we're building up our capacity to send social workers or whoever else, instead, you could kind of have this randomization where you ask some questions and then you're like, well, all right, yeah, you need a police officer or, you know what, we're going to send you someone who could take better care of what, what you actually need in this moment or connect them on the phone or they come visit in person or whatever. So I'm kind of hoping that, you know, the system that DC has set up will be a good model for places to test this sort of thing. I mean, I do think that, you know, I mean, I think police officers would tell you that a lot of the calls they go on, they do not want to be going on, you know, their mental health calls or their, you know, parents in an argument with their children or just, you know, crazy stuff that's like, there's no reason to call a police officer here, but there people don't know who else to call. There's no one else to call. And so if there were someone else to call, could that make us all better off? So I think that's a really useful conversation to have. Yeah, I put this this idea of having non-police community re- respondents to a friend of mine who is extremely critical of the um, criminal justice system in the US in general. But they, they actually just spoke up in favor of the police saying there's good evidence that the existence of police, that the number of police does reduce crime. And crime is a is a really big problem in the US in general, and it's a particularly big problem for people of color, especially like to be to, to, to be victimized by crime. And they were worried that if all we did was reduce police numbers and then replace them with social workers, that that could end up increasing crime on that and could could be a bad thing. I guess it's not so this is not my, my, my bias to speak up in favor of the police, but my understanding is that there is good evidence that police do reduce crime. Yeah, do you want to have any any anything to say on that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is gonna be part of the nuance in this conversation that we're gonna have going forward is I think, you know, there is thin evidence on a whole bunch of stuff, but like one thing we know at this point is that hiring more police officers reduces crime. Now, 
what the, the the conversation we're having is, yeah, but they might also increase a variety of social costs to the communities that they're policing, right? So if they might reduce crime, but they might there might be such negative the negative interactions that people have with police while they're doing their jobs might carry such large costs to those individuals that that's something that you know could cancel out some of the crime reduction benefits we're getting, right? Yeah. And so like a socially optimal system might actually be one where we have higher crime rates, but fewer of these other social costs. And so that's something, you know, economists love to put numbers on things and we're very focused on like measuring causal effects. And there are, you know, very few studies at this point that like really do a good job of measuring the causal effects of policing on say like educational outcomes or emotional trauma for kids in the neighborhood or something like that. So we kind of have a sense that like this is a big co- social cost, but we're not really sure how how big it is and then how to compare it to the crime reduction benefits. So I think in this conversation about like, should we shifting some of the responsibilities from the police officers to other people? I think the hope is that, you know, if we could reserve, we could have the police do the real crime fighting stuff, but have everyone else do, like having the social workers do the other stuff, then you can basically reduce a lot of the unnecessary negative interactions, which carry costs, but keep all the crime reduction benefits. I think that's the hope. You know, I think what... I'm talking with lots of policy folks these days and I, you know, people who are actually like in places where they might have, they're trying to make these decisions about what to do. What they're worried about is there's all this push, you know, the, the call to defund the police, which turns out like the definition of that is very complicated, but the label like on its face, it's like cut the police budget. Right. And so what they're worried about is, is basically you're going to find you're the city council is just going to like cut the police budget and that, and everyone's going to go home and feel like they solved the problem which is not what reformers are pushing for, <laughs> to be clear. But I think, you know, there's there's always the danger that the kind of the most simplistic versions of the mottos or the slogans wind up being what's enacted and then it doesn't fix anything. So I think in that case, if we were to just cut police budgets, there's a very real chance that we would just see crime rates go up. And so, yeah, your friend, your friend is right to be raising that. Is it, is it possible to put it, is, is there any stylized fact of, you know, having, you know, increasing the number of police by 10% reduces crime by some amount? Or? My favorite go-to paper on this is by Aaron Chelfin and Justin McCrary. So in general, the economists measure this in terms of elasticity. So it's sort of like a percent change for a 1% change. So if you increase the number of police officers by 1%, we can generally expect somewhere between a 0.1 and a 1% reduction in crime. So it's a pretty big range, but it's negative and it's pretty big. <laughs> like in general, I think the way to think about this is just in general, hiring more police officers is one of the most cost-effective ways to reduce crime. And based on if we're just looking at, you know, the cost of officers and the social cost of crime, then our cities are massively under-policed, not over-policed. Like it would be cost-effective to add more officers. And it's really only once you add kind of the additional social costs that we haven't done a very good job of quantifying them yet that you get to a point where it's like, oh, maybe that's not right and we should be cutting police forces. But that's that's fuzzier in all our minds right now. Yes, not obvious. Yeah. Yeah, let's dwell on this for a minute. I, I would not have guessed that police would have such a large effect. I suppose, well, one thing, it's like looking at the broader picture, it seems like, police in the US, they're not super accountable. You might not expect them to be doing a very good job if they're, if they're doing all these other bad things. It doesn't seem like they're potentially hiring the best people. I guess also just you put more police out on the streets, you have more, poli- like most crimes just go unsolved anyway. You know, pe- people consistently get away with theft. It's, it's, not, it's not that hard to commit a crime and get away with it. In reality, even with more police, 
So to me, it's a bit odd. What is the causal mechanism that's causing, that's allowing police to be so effective at preventing crime? Yeah. So I think that the general consensus is that it's mostly a deterrent effect. So it's not necessarily like catching people after the fact and locking them up. Although that, you know, there is a crime reduction effect from incapacitation as well. Like when you, if you put someone in prison, they can't commit more crime out in the street. But most of the effect, I think in most studies that are able to figure out what the channel is, it's coming from deterrence. So, you know, there are all of these randomized control trials of like hotspot policing, where we put a cop on this corner, but not on this other corner over here. And we randomize where we put them. And those studies routinely find a big drop in crime on the street corner where you put the cop. So, so what's going on is maybe prospective criminals just see that there's lots of police around and, and then just they decide to commit fewer crimes. Yeah, I think a lot of crime is just like crime of opportunity. You know, it's not carefully premeditated. It's like, oh, I see a laptop left on that park bench. The person doesn't seem to be around. Maybe I'll grab it. And if there's a police officer standing right there, you don't do it, you know. And so, yeah, I think that's basically the story. Interesting. I heard someone semi-facetiously say, well, because of this, we should just hire lots of police officers and get them to stand around in street corners and kind of do nothing. <laughs> well, so, so, so they won't, they won't harass anyone. No. Okay. <laughs> cities do this. Like I did a ride along in Chicago once and, and the officers I was riding along with were like, you know, people hate getting stationed and that kind of stuff because it's like there are people who are just sitting in their car on a street corner and they've just been stationed to be like sitting in their car all night just to sit there. And it's really boring. <laughs> but I think there's, cool. it comes from this sense that like, that's actually one of the most cost effective ways to reduce crime right on that street corner. Yeah. They sound kind of like scarecrows, I suppose. <laughs> Just like sitting there, not doing anything. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So you could imagine, you know, if, if basically if it's super effective to have someone there, they don't necessarily need to be a trained police officer, although maybe it wouldn't be as effective if the person didn't have a gun and didn't have the ability to come and rescue and stuff, right? So sort of a question about like, you know, so Jane Jacobs, had, it was this, this sociologist, I guess, urban planner or something like that, who has had this theory about cities, like the safety of cities really depends on how many people are just out on the streets. So sort of a, a very similar story where we expect that if there are lots of people around who could witness you doing bad things, you're less likely to do them because you're more likely to get caught. And so the people around don't have to be police officers, but kind of depending on the situation, it might help if they're police officers, I guess. You know, you're, you can be more sure that they will intervene if they're police officers, and they have more authority if you were to resist. But yeah, I mean, I think just in general, knowing that people could see you doing bad stuff can have a big deterrent effect. Yeah, I guess the fact that police have a big effect on crime rates makes it even more important, more more urgent to get up the standards of police interactions with the community. Because, I mean, we, we can't have lots of police. There won't be support for that if it's the case that they they harass or assault people at a level that just means that people think that, that they don't trust the police. They indeed fear the police. They won't call the police. Yeah, they won't cooperate with investigations. So in going back to your point about clearance rates, like a lot of crimes go unsolved, including a lot of murders go unsolved. I think part of the explanation for that is, is probably that a lot of the communities that are often victims of crimes, as you said, don't trust the police enough to talk to them and help them find the person who did it. And so if you don't have the cooperation of the community, you cannot do your job as a police officer. Yeah, I suppose it's a it's a whole other side of this that I haven't really seen quantified that much. Like how many, you know, each, each act of police misconduct has its direct cost, but then it may also just have this, this, this huge kind of hidden indirect effect where people don't talk to the police and, and they don't support having police. And then that leads to, to more crime. And I guess it, it could be one of the drivers of why crime rates are higher in the United States. Yep, I think that, that I think that's right. And so, yeah, possibly 
this might also explain why, um, I mean, I was surprised to learn that, in fact, countries in Europe spend more on police and have more police than the United States, because in, in, in almost any other way, the United States <laughs> criminal justice system is much more overbuilt and uh, extravagant and the, and the punishments are more severe and there's more people in prison and so on. But, but on this one thing where it's like maybe you could prevent the crimes from happening in the first place, there's like a bit less spent on that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure. I haven't actually, I hadn't actually seen those numbers. I'm not sure what, maybe it's some sort of returns to scale or something. Although all the police departments are really tiny, you know, I mean, there's, it's all totally decentralized. So I'm not sure. That, that's another one. So the U.S. has 18,000 police departments, I read. That seems odd. <laughs> what, and, and I guess also it means yeah. that you, you would expect like far greater variety in the quality that it could be that there's some really outstanding police departments in the United States, Absolutely. but it's like when you have 18,000 of them, there's going to be a bunch of just terrible ones you would expect, yeah. unless there's a huge amount yeah. of quality control where they're being shut down if they're no good, which I guess doesn't really happen. You know, do you think it would improve the average quality of police if say they were, you know, operated at the city level rather than the county level or at the state level rather than the city or, or county level? That's a good question. So, I mean, in general, I think, you know, an economist uh, probably more than anyone else err toward having things be decentralized and like operate as locally as possible, because then it helps sort of you're closest to the community you're trying to serve and the preferences of the community you're trying to serve. That said, you know, if you're building a system from scratch, we might imagine doing it in a way that allowed more oversight and control from a, a higher level. I mean, the way that, you know, in practice, the way that control is, is operated is through budgets. So the federal government gives out a lot of grants and stuff. And so basically, like, you can condition that funding on following certain rules. The DOJ has a lot of power to, like, intervene and do investigations if a police department is just out of control. And so you have these consent decrees where the federal government is actually very heavily involved for a little while. So there is, I mean, there is oversight, but there is, you're totally right. There's tremendous variation. There are some wonderful police departments there's real problem police departments. But I think the upside of this is going to be that, you know, in this current moment where we're like, gosh, we have no idea what to do. If all 18,000 police departments do different things, we can learn really fast what works, right? And actually my biggest fear is often what you see is, you know, everybody sort of following what their neighbors are doing, you know, and like, yeah, just because no one really knows what to do. And so they don't want to do something different because there's safety in the herd. Yeah. If that fails, they won't look like an idiot because everyone else was trying it too. And that actually, yeah, we should be going the opposite direction right now. Yeah. One, on the question of like what, what level of government should things be, be run at? I mean, there's a lot to be said for, for having things be local. But one thing I worry about is when, when things get too local, people just don't have the bandwidth to be thinking about their local school and really holding it accountable and their local police department are holding it accountable and like local utilities and all these other things. You know, voters and politically active people only have so much attention to go around. And I worry that when there's so many different bodies, I mean, people pay a lot of attention to national politics, things are getting more and more, more nationalized. And I guess it means that there might be ne- just neglect of whether anyone is really paying attention to these to these really local organizations that then can kind of run out of control because there's there's not enough, not enough people watching and complaining. Yeah, potentially. I mean, so like in the US, education is all local too. I mean, just like all this stuff is local. You know, I generally think of it as being a huge benefit in this space because- I mean, the worst case scenario in my mind would be that everything is controlled by the federal government because our federal government is doing nothing right now. (laughs) You know, it's very difficult to get changes through Congress, but like things happen at the state and local level, like things get done. Right. And so that makes me more confident that reforms will happen because it's not going to be as politically contentious. I think partly because of what you're saying, it's not going to be quite the political firestorm or focus of attention of all the cable news shows. 
because it would have to be a separate one in every locality. And so you can kind of avoid the political just stalemate that results at the federal level. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One, one class of reforms that we haven't talked about is policies to try to reduce racial discrimination in, in particular. We've talked mostly about ways of just improving things uh, across the board. Are there any policies that we know of that can cause police to yeah, treat people of different races more, more equally? Hmm. In the policing context, I don't know of any studies off the top of my head. I'll probably remember some as soon as we get off the phone. <laughs> but in general, I mean, you know, the, what we were talking about earlier about police discretion I think points to me that often like implementing really strict rules that limits individual discretion can be beneficial. So this is like that Jeremy West paper where it's like when they're figuring out whether or not to write you up for the expired registration, they like give the white drivers a pass, but not the black drivers. So, and that discretion is generally exercised in the sense of like in that one direction, you go, you're lenient on the people that are like you, but you're not lenient you don't use the discretion for good <laughs> for the people that you're you're less sympathetic to. And so, you know, to the extent that you just don't have the options, like let's say you have to take a photo of the registration and it automatically reads the date or something and there's you know then there's no way for you to decide whether or not to write them up. There's a paper in the court context looking at federal sentencing guidelines, I think, and basically showing that the end of federal sentencing guidelines wound up increasing racial disparities in sentencing. And it's basically the same sort of story. When you give judges really strict guidelines about what the sentence can be, they have to do it. But then as soon as you remove that, they use their discretion and they apply their discretion in a way that inevitably allows human bias, you know, racial bias to seep in. And so, you know, I think there's this general sense, I often describe it as like a pendulum swinging back and forth with like the U.S. conversation about removing or allowing discretion. And this comes up most with judges. You know, we we like the idea of people being able to use their discretion for good. We like the idea of, you know, the, the strict rule said you should get 20 years in prison, but the wise judge can look at you and see that clearly, yeah, the, the numbers that went into that calculation weren't representative in your case and you had some special circumstance. And so you want that wise judge to be able to solve that problem. But then the, the pendulum swings the other way. And then we see cases of, you know, the wise judge gives the white person, you know, two years and the black person 20 years. And we're like, ah, shrink the disparity, like take the leeway away from the judge. So there's kind of a, you know, I think the hope, what people want is for people to be able to use their discretion only for good, but discretion comes with both the good and the bad and human beings in general are biased. <laughs> and so, so whenever we allow humans to make decisions where there's, you know, limited course correction or limited oversight, we should expect racial disparities to emerge. So I think finding ways to reduce that kind of discretion feels like a promising avenue to me. Yeah. Surely, surely there's been attempts to create training to try to reduce differences in, in treatment of different, different races. Do you know of any research into, into whether that works? I suppose I'm a bit intuitively pessimistic, but. <laughs> well, so, I mean, the, the most popular training at this point is implicit bias training. And that certainly had that, that ho- the, that's the goal is to reduce racial bias and behavior. My understanding is that there is little, if any, research supporting the effectiveness of implicit bias training. And certainly most psychologists that I know think it is total garbage, <laughs> but it sounds good. And we see a lot, this is another place where it's like, we could have just admitted to ourselves that like there was an incident in the U S a while back where like Starbucks, there was like a Starbucks employee that kicked two black customers out 
And everyone's like, this is crazy. We need to do something about this. And and so Starbucks shut down for a day or two to have implicit bias training and everyone else adopted implicit bias training. And it's like, this is an amazing opportunity to figure out if implicit bias training works. Just implement it in a way, again, the staggered rollout could be helpful. If you just do this right, we can actually figure out how to solve the problem. And, you know, the cynical side of me is like, they don't, you know, big corporations don't necessarily want to solve the problem. They just want to kind of win the PR battle, right? They just want to look good. And so as long as everyone thinks that this will work, that's all that they need. But this is just, it's, yeah, it's another place where I think it just drives home the point that like, you know, we should just, we can do whatever it is we're going to do, but just acknowledge we don't actually know yet if it's going to be a solution. And if we're really serious about finding a solution, we should be willing to evaluate it and then do something else if it doesn't work. If I wanted to speculate, I think maybe not enough conversations mean about how do we avoid hiring racist cops or how do we fire the ones who show racist attitudes? I mean, it does just seem like a remarkable number of people express just, it's, it's not implicit racism, it's explicitly racist attitudes. And I guess I don't, I don't know how much is done to filter those people out so they can, you know, never be on the streets with a, with a gun. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I think this goes back to the conversation we're having about hiring and what does it mean to be a good cop? And how do we, how can we tell what is the, you know, what is the line of questioning during the interview that can help you hire the people who are less biased rather than people who are more biased? And how do you identify when they're on the job, who's being biased and who isn't? I mean, it's not like, it's not like there's a right answer from case to case about what should have happened. And then you can see like, well, he gets it wrong for all the black residents, right? And it's like, there's not like an answer key we can compare you to. And so a lot of times it really does we can say something about statistical averages across people or something like that, but being able to identify bias by an individual officer is is harder unless you have, yeah, unless you have something akin to a natural experiment, which is often tricky. Let's push on. Two of your more, more famous results found that, I guess, yeah, ban the box policies, which were designed to help people convicted of crimes get jobs, didn't have that effect at all. And actually, also substantially increased discrimination against especially African-American men with, with a high school degree or less. And then you have another one, which is not about crime, but found that the same product listed by hypothetical uh, black sellers on a kind of secondhand goods market, I guess like Craigslist, got 18% fewer offers of purchase from interested buyers. And the offers they did receive were, were 11% lower than those listed by, by hypothetical white users. But actually, I, I, I'm especially keen to talk for a while about ways to prevent crime that, that don't involve prisons or don't involve police. It seems like there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that there might be of ways that we can just stop crimes from happening in the first place or stop people from in, being interested in committing crimes before before it happens. <laughs> I don't know, like Minority Report, but maybe using light bulbs instead of amazing technology. <laughs> so yeah, on, on that topic, you have this amazing paper, which I was, I was really stunned by, called uh, The Effects of DNA Databases on the Deterrence and Detection of Offenders, which I guess changed my mind on the issue of DNA databases, which I think previously I would have Fabulous. had a, a negative, a negative <laughs> vibe towards. Um, yeah, just just to quote, to quote a report on this paper, in a study of more than 38,000 males who were arrested for crimes roughly equivalent in severity to felonies in the United States, the research team found that being added to a DNA database reduced reoffending by a stunning 43%. And the harsher criminal sentences that are favored by self-styled tough-on-crime politicians have, have shown no evidence of producing any comparable level of crime reduction. And Jennifer's uh, US work further notes that deterring a crime via DNA databases costs less than 10% of the cost of producing the same deterrent effect by building more prisons. I suppose maybe that might be because prisons don't really uh, deter crime all that well at all. But yeah, what methods did you use to, to establish that effect? And what implications do you think that has? 
Sure. So yeah, so I have work on the effectiveness of DNA databases, both in the US and in Denmark. So that that whopping 43% number is coming from Denmark, where we had amazing data. So DNA databases are basically computer databases that contain an identifying number, essentially, that identifies you based on your DNA profile. And it depends on state law in the United States and national law in other places, which categories of offenders are required to provide DNA to the database. So typically kind of start with the murderers and add the rapists like at another time. And then a year or two later, you might add anyone convicted of robbery and so on and, and so forth. And so in both the U.S. and, and Denmark context, there was, you know, there was an existing database, but then at some point they expanded the database to include an additional category of people. And so what you can do then that sets up a situation where let's say the the expansion goes into effect on June 1st, you have anyone who was say charged with the crime on, on May 30th, doesn't go in the database. Anyone charged with the same crime on June 2nd does go in the database, but there's nothing else that happens discontinuously at that June 1 threshold. And so we would expect those two offenders to be very similar. You know, anyone who kind of looks observationally equivalent is probably equivalent in terms of their likelihood of reoffending before the database came online. And so what we can do then is compare those people who are like just on either side of that start date over time and see what happens to recidivism. And in both the U.S. and in Denmark, I find big drops in recidivism. And so in the Danish context, again, we have much better data, so we can measure it more, much more precisely and and, all, and even, are even able to kind of separate out the effect of, because DNA, the goal here is that if your profile is in the database, it can be frequently compared with crime scene evidence. And so the reason we might expect a deterrent effect, I should have said this at the beginning, is that you know you'll be more likely to get caught if you offend again. So basically, if the database matches you with crime scene evidence, then that's a lead that police might not have had otherwise. So it'll identify you as a suspect in a crime if you might not otherwise have been a suspect. So yeah, so we see this big deterrent effect, but that the DNA database itself could actually lead to an increase in the likelihood that you get caught. Like that's the whole point. And so if you just sort of look at the data, we might have expected if it had no effect on recidivism, we would expect an increase in the likelihood of being reconvicted, right? Because you're just more likely to get caught. And so the fact that, especially in the US context, where I was kind of had to just look at the net of those two things, I still see a significant negative effect means that it's got to be even, that's like a, an underestimate of the benefit. So I find that in the United States, being required to submit a DNA sample to the database reduced the likelihood of a new conviction within five years by about 17% for serious violent offenders. And that was statistically significant. It reduced the likelihood of a, another conviction by 6% for serious property offenders, so a little bit smaller. And then, yeah, in Denmark, we were able to, the expansion was a bit different. It was like a huge expansion of the database in 2005, I think. And so... It was essentially going from adding only sort of the most serious offenders and in only a few cases to adding anyone who is charged with the equivalent of a felony. And so, yeah, just found huge effects on their behavior for that very broad group. So, yeah, I mean, I think my prior going into this line of research was probably similar to yours. I was like, well, this will probably have benefits in terms of catching offenders more quickly. But it seems but like it psychs them out. I think I was skeptical. It seems like it kind of it's psyching them out. They, I guess they yeah. they see that they've gone into a DNA database and maybe they they yeah. think that they're just like far more likely to be to recall and they I guess some fraction are reconsidering their life of crime. Yeah, no, I think that there's there are kind of two ways I think about this. So yeah, there's this whole this whole issue of like 
how accurate are their perceptions of the likelihood of getting caught, right? And surely to some extent they're overestimating <laughs> because most yeah, criminals we just don't... aren't caught most of the time. Yeah, yeah. But so to some extent that could be due to, you know, the way that people learn about this sort of stuff isn't from reading academic papers, it's from watching things like, you know, crime shows on TV and there like everything works, you know, immediately. And so it's yeah. like magic. And so people might think, ah, I'm in the database. It's like magic. They'll catch me. So it's possible they're overestimating. And then you just need to count on sort of the technology progressing faster than people learn that it's actually not that good. The other possibility is there's this kind of prospect theory that people are just really bad at interpreting probabilities. And so if it's like above 0.8, we'll just call it one. <laughs> And if it's below, you know, 0.1, we'll call it zero. And so something where it increases the probability sort of enough, it might just be something where people are like the way that in practice humans interpret that hi higher probability just suddenly like pushes it to like almost 100% in their minds and the way they respond to it. So I think that's also a possibility here. There's some sort of threshold or tipping point in terms of it's a high enough probability of getting caught that. I just, I feel like it's like basically a certainty. And so I'm just, I'm going to change my behavior. So, yeah. Yeah. So on this topic of ways of preventing crime before it happens, there's another paper of yours, Under the Cover of Darkness, How Ambient Light Influences Criminal Behavior. And also I, there was an episode of uh, Horrible Causation, which I found very memorable, which looked at putting very bright lights in, in crime hotspots in New York, uh, I think I think near, near, near public housing. So a bit like floodlights. So it was fairly extreme, but it was really dramatically increasing the lighting in these areas where a lot of crimes are being committed, which found at a minimum a 36% reduction in nighttime outdoor crimes. And I think it largely, it, it wasn't just a matter of substitution. It was really reducing crime. So what have you learned from your own research on, on, on lighting and what, what implications does that have? Should we be rolling out the LEDs instead of, or, or possibly <laughs> in addition to our now better trained police officers? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so my own paper with Nick Sanders is, is using daylight saving time as a natural experiment to measure the effect of ambient lighting. And so basically the idea is that, you know, on the, on one day, the sun sets at 5 PM and the next day it sets at 6 PM. And so suddenly that five to 6 PM hour is light instead of dark. And because we all just, you know, our schedules are somewhat fixed based on what time work ends and what time we're commuting home and all of that, we can't just adjust easily to that, that change in daylight. And so if we think that potential criminals respond to the likelihood of getting caught, then this should matter, right? So if you, so we have this conventional wisdom that you don't commit crime like in broad daylight, right? And I think the idea there is that if you were to mug someone, say, when the sun is shining, they might see you coming, witnesses might see you and be able to identify you later. Like in general, you're going to be more likely to get caught for that than if you do it in the dark. And so, so we're able to test that and find that, that yeah, that when and that evening hour is dark instead of light, robberies go up. So uh, it does seem like light matters. Of course, we don't have full control over sunlight, right? We can move it around in that way, but like we can't just like make more of it. So, so the policy you, 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 you can move to a move to a different latitude. Although, I suppose then you have to do it yeah, with winter. Right. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Somehow, this is like there's some science fiction story that might come out of this. But yeah, so the the paper that you're referring to about the floodlights or you know form of streetlights, Aaron Chalfin was the guest on on my podcast uh, who was talking about this and one of the authors in that study. So they actually were able to randomize 
within public housing where these these additional street lights were placed. That's sort of like the next best thing to to adding sunlight is the man-made light. Yeah, and they found big crime reduction benefits. So I think again, I mean, the idea is you're less likely to commit crime when it feels like you are more likely to be observed and identified later and might be punished for it. What was the issue with, uh, was there was there substitution from kind of the, towards people just committing crime later in the in the night when uh, under daylight saving time? Or was it just like a, oh. uh, an actual reduction in total crime? No, it was a net reduction in crime. Basically what we would expect, you know, the standard rational theory of criminal offending perhaps might make you think, well, they'll just commit crime in the morning instead because that's where the, <laughs> right. being, that's where the daylight's being shifted from. Uh, I think they'll just uh, get up at know. 6 a.m. in the morning like yeah, early birds exactly. and go and... them on their commute to work and so the commute home. I think, yeah, I think it appears that criminals are not early risers and so that does not happen. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So... I've got a bunch of other ideas or like other policy areas where we might be able to reduce crime before it happens. Cognitive behavioral therapy. I think there's been some positive results on that. I think uh, preventing pollution. I think we have evidence that uh, lots of forms of pollution that were, I guess, were were very prevalent in the United States in the past and are still surprisingly common today have cognitive effects that make people more likely to commit crimes and more impulsive. I guess uh, that's known with lead, but it seems like it's not the the only case. And then uh, possibly we could also talk about, you know, economic opportunity, you know, uh, how do government transfers affect crime? Uh, you know, are people committing crimes sometimes out of economic desperation? I would be excited to talk about those if you have interesting things to say about them. But there's all of these other ways of reducing crime outside the criminal justice system that don't impose the massive costs of sending people to prison and, you know, ruining their lives and harming their kids and their family and so on. And it just eyeballing it, it looks to me like we might be really systematically, un- maybe we're underinvesting in police in as much as they reduce crime. But it seems like we must be maybe underinvesting in these even more. <laughs> Street lighting perhaps could be a, a really big deal. Is that qualitative impression, right? That is also my impression. Yes. I think based on the evidence, we should be pouring money into education and summer jobs for teens and lead abatement. I, mean, I think if anyone came to me and said, like, what would you What's the number one thing if I've got a million dollars to spend What would to reduce crime? What would you do with it? I'd say invest in lead abatement. Yeah, pollution. I'm about to just interviewed someone for probable causation about the effects of air pollution on crime, big effects there. I think there are bigger effects of air pollution on mortality. So the, a reduction in violent crime is actually like a rounding error in the, the social benefits of that. But, you know. But even then it would be justified just then, on that alone. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there are tons of things we should be investing more in that would be cost effective to invest in. And I I think especially in the crime context, I work a lot on prisoner reentry and trying to understand how to reduce recidivism. And and it turns out it's really hard. It is much easier to prevent crime up front, to prevent someone from committing their first crime than getting someone onto a better track later once they're sort of already in the criminal justice system. So the more that we can invest up front in yeah, and preventing anyone from their sort of their first criminal justice interaction, the better we are off we are as a society for sure. Okay, yeah. Well, let's let's talk about cognitive behavioral therapy and and pollution, and I guess yeah, any kind of economic opportunity things. <laughs> are there any papers there that you that you'd like to highlight, which uh, maybe you know indicate how large the effect sizes might be? Sure. I'm not sure I'm going to have the effect sizes off the top of my head, but um, the 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 main you say big it was really big. big. It was really big. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, the, the effects of so the, the main paper on cognitive behavioral therapy is by Sarah Heller and colleagues. There are other papers too. It's not just kind of a one-off. It's been CBT is a place where I feel like we have a fair amount of evidence. So cognitive behavioral therapy for folks who are listening is, is basically a, a form of a form of therapy where 
you're taught to kind of slow down your decision-making and think through the assumptions you're making, perhaps about the context or the script you have in your head about like the way that the social interaction is going to go and questioning those assumptions and, and then perhaps make better decisions as a result. And so, yes, there was a, a randomized controlled trial done in schools in Chicago, as well as juvenile detention facilities in Chicago, where the individuals that were assigned to get CBT were then followed over time and compared with people who did, were not assigned to, to get CBT. Like, a, again, it was randomized, so similar group. And they found really big benefits. So the juvenile detention sample, they found really big reductions in the likelihood that those, those kids were reincarcerated in the future and really persistent effects. So, I mean, it's just incredibly cost effective. Like this program is not that expensive and the benefits are just massive. So that's a place where, I mean, I kind of joke along with the lead abatement, which is not a joke. I, I tend to joke that like the other kind of hypothesis I have about how to reduce crime, it would be to like just give everyone a therapist. I feel like we'd all be better off if we all have a therapist. And I feel like cognitive behavioral therapy is like, I bet that I bet that other forms of mental health care are are also effective. It does, isn't like CBT isn't quite mental health care, but it's like in the vicinity. But I think any sort of form of therapy that's helping people like figure out talk why they're making their decisions. Yeah, talk through their problems and figure out why they make the decisions they do and maybe make better ones. That would probably benefit everyone, but especially people who've grown up, you know, with with the trauma of violence in their their lives and so on. So, so yeah, so CBT is a good one. Let's see. U.S. pollution is the other one. So lead, yeah, there's been a, a good amount of work on lead. There's, I think people know about the, so Kevin Drum has been a leading proponent of the lead crime hypothesis that we have this mysterious drop in crime rates beginning in like the early to mid nineties that have basically continued unabated <laughs> through today. Like suddenly, you know, crime was really high in the mid nineties and then suddenly like fell farther and farther. And it's huge. Huge. It's like a two-thirds drop. Yeah, it's just it's like crime is phenomenal. no longer a problem. Like crime, like the U.S. used to be super dangerous. And now, despite all everything we were saying earlier about how, how, how high violent crime rates are, actually the United States is incredibly safe relative to, to the past. So Kevin Drum and others have sort of noted, like if you kind of go back from the peak of, of crime in the mid-90s, 15 to 20 years earlier, that's basically when gasoline was deleted. So we so we had leaded gasoline and cars would drive around and the exhaust from the cars would spread lead around the environment. And then at a certain point in time, that was banned. And so now there's no more lead coming out of the car exhaust. And so fast forward to like the kids that grow up now without lead in the environment and they no longer are committing crime, perhaps. Let's just say that is a hypothesis out there the big drop in crime in the 90s was surely the product of a whole lot of things. I don't think we have any conclusive evidence that that was the story, but it led to a lot of interest in the link between lead and crime. And so there is now other evidence that I find extremely convincing using a variety of approaches, all measuring the causal effect of both exposure to lead and the CDC recommended guidelines for anyone who is exposed to lead, like the intervention that they do to try to mitigate that effect on things like educational outcomes as well as criminal activity. And basically lead is just really, really bad and lead seems to cause high crime rates. One of my favorite papers that, you know, isn't necessarily, there are others that are more recent and kind of based on samples that are perhaps more relevant for policymakers today. But one of my favorite papers is, is an economic history paper where they compare places that had lead pipes or non-lead pipes. And then they also take advantage of the fact that apparently only 
like the water has to be a certain acidity level or like in a certain range for the lead to seep into the water. And so it was like a really nice, not just difference in difference comparing places with lead pipes or not, but a triple difference where they layered on, like you have to have a lead pipe and the certain acidity level of water. Those are the only places they're treated really that like lead would get into the water supply. And so you're basically using like other places with lead pipes as a control group and other places with similarly acidic water as a control group to difference out other things that might be different about those cities. And they find that like the places with the lead pipes and that kind of that acidic water had much higher homicide rates, dramatically higher homicide rates than other cities. I mean, I love just the mix of science and the history there that that is able to kind of provide a really nice natural experiment. And I also just think it's a really compelling result. I guess we've, we've already done a fair bit to reduce lead. And I'm wondering, I mean, presumably there's there's still some places that, that needs to be removed. There's still too much of it. But I guess, yeah, what, what on the margin, I guess, do we need to do today in terms of pollution reduction? Oh, well, so, yeah. So you're right that like overall lead levels are much lower on average, but we do. I mean, in the US, we have cities like Flint, Michigan that has major problems with lead in their water. Like this is an ongoing disaster in certain cities. So there's still, there's a lot of work to be done there. Okay. Yeah. So you you think lead reduction is the best buy maybe in in crime prevention? Seems to me. I mean, I feel like there is really compelling evidence right now that it not only increases crime, lead exposure, but it also dramatically reduces educational outcomes, which can have long-term effects. So in general, it just, yeah, affects your brain in such a negative way that it would be extremely cost-effective to invest more there. Yeah. Do you want to say anything about economics or I guess economic opportunity and inequality and, and government transfers and things like that and, and, and the effect that that has on crime. Is, is that an important factor? Sure. Yeah. So I think the best evidence on this comes, well, so we can kind of go back to the divide between like preventing crime and reducing recidivism, right? So on the prevention side, there's some really nice evidence that things like Head Start programs and government transfer programs that increase well-being of, of children when they're very young. So increased educational opportunities and like health interventions, food stamps in the U.S., providing better nutrition, all of those then lead to lower crime rates later. There also are a lot of policies and there have been policy changes in the U.S. related to who's eligible to receive those types of government transfers as adults. And often a criminal record makes you ineligible. And so some people have have taken advantage of those types of policy changes to see what the impacts of banning people with criminal records from receiving that kind of government assistance has on their recidivism rates. And it tends to increase recidivism. So in general, in line with the idea that increasing financial resources tends to reduce criminal activity. Interesting. Let's move on and talk about the economics profession for a little bit. I follow you on Twitter as our listeners might be able to tell. And uh, one thing you did on there last year is post a lot of job market papers written by female economics PhD graduates specifically to try to get them, I guess, noticed more and, and raise the chances of uh, of getting a getting a good, a good academic position. And recently you've tweeted about a bunch of ways you think that the profession is not as welcoming as, as it could be to, to people of color. Yeah. How do you think having more more women and people of color in economics would would improve the profession? I guess one obvious part that occurs to me is would cause people to focus on different questions, uh, questions that particularly concern those groups that otherwise might have been neglected. I suppose, you know, economics think more about crime than it used to and, and, and police, but maybe if there were more people of color in the profession, we would have gone onto this research agenda decades earlier. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think you're, you're totally right that, you know, different people with different life experiences will not only ask different questions, but have different hypotheses about what the answers might be. And especially as we're, you know, trying to figure out which things should we be testing that could, you know, improve policing and so on. Having people who, again, have more 
or different experiences with police officers than the people who are currently in the economics profession might lead to testing of different hypotheses. The other way is just sort of a human capital story, right? Like if we want the best and brightest people in the profession, then we can't we can't just like exclude large groups, <laughs> right? It's it's going to be socially inefficient for us to be through whether it's intentional policies or just tolerating bad behavior or whatever else. If that discourages the best and brightest from joining the economics profession, that is a detriment to the profession. That makes us all worse off. It means that amazing econ papers that would have been written might not get written. And so I want colleagues who are the best and brightest people and knowing that there are people, like I get emails all the time from college students or graduate students who are watching what's happening in the economics profession and wondering if this all means that they would not be welcome there and maybe they should go, you know, apply their amazing skills somewhere else. And that would be a huge gain for, for the, whatever that somewhere else is and a huge loss to us. And so, you know, my response is generally the fact that we're having these conversations out loud right now in economics is actually a really good sign. It does not mean that economics is worse than most of the other fields that they might be considering, like tech or business or, you know, I mean, all of these fields have, problems. have their own problems. Yeah. And, and, but I think the fact that we're, we're having these very difficult conversations very publicly and that even junior faculty are willing to, you know, stick their, their necks out and, and register concern about senior people in some cases, I think is ultimately a very good sign that they're more confident than they would have been in the past. This is not going to hurt their careers. And so, you know, the first step is reporting and 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 bringing the the problems to light and I think we are doing a lot of that right now. And there's a lot of energy in, you know, when I back when we were allowed to travel, <laughs> whenever I would go around <laughs> and give talks, this was a conversation almost everywhere I went, whether it was over lunch or dinner or an office meeting. So people were like, wait, what is your department? What have you heard about? What are people trying to try to get more, you know, women and minorities and, and you know, either it's grad students or as faculty or make people feel more included. And everyone's just sort of in brainstorming, not everyone, but a lot of people are in brainstorming mode right now. And I feel like this is in so many ways, if anyone can solve a problem like this, it's going to be economists because we, we not only, you know, think about how people respond to incentives and why people make the, the choices that they do. But we're also, our toolkit allows us to test whether things work. And so, you know, we can generate hypotheses, but then we can also go test them. And so I'm, I don't know, I'm confident. I'm, op, I'm an optimist on this. I feel like there are a lot of problems and, you know, I have tenure, so I have the job security that is necessary to, be comfortable Speak pointing them out. Yep. So I might as well use it for good. But I'm also just very optimistic that we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. I actually almost can't think of another area where it seems more important to have people with a wide range of life experiences represented in order to get to the truth than social science research. It seems like it's going to be devastating to not to. Totally. Yeah. And especially, I mean, in economics... You know, a lot of people really don't like economists <laughs> I mean, in part because people listen to us, right? We have a seat at the yeah. table at a lot of really important tables. And that's partly because we do have this toolkit that allows us to test what the effects of policies are and quantify them and help policymakers think about trade-offs and all those things. And, you know, I'm, you know, might be a little biased. I think, I think the economist toolkit is really important and really helpful. 
And so I guess it's a it's a bit of a litmus test for economics. If it, yeah, if it can't cure exactly. itself of these problems, then it's like <laughs> what uses all of this social science and causal identification if by revealed preference, I think all this stuff is important. <laughs> but yeah, but because we have these these seats at these important tables, we need to make sure that we have good answers. And that, yeah, and and just just for like moral and ethical reasons, we should make sure that people have a fair shot at being at those tables. And it just, you know, even if you don't care for some reason about, I guess I try, I lead with the efficiency arguments because I, lots of economists don't really care about the ethical or moral arguments. They want to know about the efficiency. And I think there's a very strong efficiency argument being, to be made for increasing diversity. The status quo is just so inefficient. But I think most people are also persuaded by the moral, the moral argument. Yeah, I, I'm always reluctant to report information or to highlight information that might discourage people from going into jobs where they're currently underrepresented, because then you're just like potentially reinforcing the problem. But it's, a, it's also important that people kind of have an accurate picture of what their professional life is going to be like and, and what more barriers that they might face. So I guess given that, what, what would you say it's like being a woman in the economics professional with things considered? And yeah, what, what are some of the things, specific things you'd like to see change to make it more, more appealing or accessible? even if it's not worse than other <laughs> other similar professions? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think there's been a lot of research that's come out in recent years about how you know women's research tends to just be given less of a benefit of the doubt than the research of white men. And women tend to get less credit for the research they do do. So if you have a male co-author, he will get more credit and he's more likely to be promoted to tenure than you are, um, which suggests that... And the promotion committees give him more credit for the work. You're more likely to be, you know, papers that look equivalent on a variety of dimensions are, if you compare two very similar papers that are published in our top journals, one by men and one by women, the women's papers actually cited much more often, which suggests that there's a higher bar. If to the extent that citations are a proxy for contribution, that suggests that like that marginal paper is actually much better than the marginal male paper. And so that suggests that the bar is higher basically to get in as female authors. There's a bunch of evidence around that. I mean, I think the kind of like, so those are the the facts that I would like to see changed. I think the big question, of course, as, as in every, you know, tricky policy area is what to do, like, how do we change it? And I think that is what people are really grappling with. So for the past year and a half, I guess, I've been collecting data on who gets invited to give seminar talks in econ departments. And part of that is because I actually think that those kinds of opportunities are really important and are a lever that we can really, that we have the ability to push on. You know, people are like, we should hire more women and we should hire more minorities. But like, if you have a limited pool and you don't get to hire that often, it's just, you know, it's hard. That's just really hard. But if you want to invite more female speakers or invite more minority speakers, that's easy. You know, that like everyone has seminar series. We can do that every year. And I actually, I think it's important both for, in terms of, you know, seminars are how researchers disseminate our research. It's how we get feedback. It's also how we build networks. And I think the networking aspect of it is incredibly important. So when people ask me what to do, I'm like, you know, diversify your seminar series. Like it's just feels like low hanging fruit to me, but people are experimenting with all kinds of things. They're all kind of like role model interventions. An example of something that doesn't work is gender neutral tenure clock pauses. So, so in general for academics, if you have a baby, your tenure clock is paused for a year. They move from just having that for women to being for men, it turns out when men get the tenure clock stop it or pause also, they just use that extra gear to do more work. So that policy actually just increased tenure rates for men and didn't do anything for women. So it actually made the problem worse. 
So anyway, so it's just an ex- another example of the potential of unintended consequences and needing testing and exactly and being willing to be wrong <laughs> about what's going to, what it's going to take. Yeah, obviously you can't speak to being a woman of color in economics yourself. I but I guess are there are there any are there any <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, are there any forms that you think might attract you know a wider range of uh, people from or different races to consider a career in economics? Well, I mean, I have to say that the, it was part of my motivation for starting my own podcast was just to kind of showcase the cool work that economists do and the kinds of things that we that we think about all day. That isn't you know GDP and money, right? I mean, I think there's a even when I was in college, I sort of like, I always loved economics and I was an econ major. I just sort of assumed I would be an investment banker because that's what you do with the, with an econ major, right? And, you know, if you don't want to do that, then I don't know, it's not really clear what the options are. And now, like now that I, you know, study crime for a living, it's so obvious to me that the econ toolkit is applicable to so many things. Like if you care about policy in any way, it is extremely valuable to you and whatever type of policy you care about to have this toolkit at your fingertips. And so, so making that case, I mean, I think there's a lot of energy that goes into just showcasing the variety of policy problems that economists study and contribute to, to solving. And I, I guess I hope, I hope that that helps make us more appealing to a broader audience. But, you know, I think when people who are currently in the field can say good things about it, <laughs> feel like they're treated fairly, that would probably also help the pipeline. And so I, I moving in that direction seems, seems good too. Let's talk about another aspect of the uh, economics profession. I guess it seems to me like there's been a big increase in higher quality social science research on crime recently. I'm not sure whether that's just an illusion because I've started listening to your show, but I guess this all looks to me kind of like a way, like a post credibility revolution wave where suddenly the, well, there's an explosion in the use of these kind of natural experiments to try to actually get answers to causal questions in economics and, and, and related areas. Do you think that that sounds right? And as I was, I'm interested to know how much do you think we can we can trust this literature, given that we've seen, I suppose, lots of <laughs> other research in psychology and other aspects of social science, and I guess all of the you know all of the results maybe from observational studies now seem more suspect than we used to think they they are. How much how much should we believe all of this research? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think responsible researchers are always careful about thinking about generalizability, and you interpret literatures, not you don't make policy based on single papers. That said, I mean, I do think that economists' approach to the concerns about like p-hacking and and so on is better, I think, than a lot of other disciplines. So basically what economists do and, and you know, people gripe about this all the time is we expect, you know, you've got your 30-page paper and then we also expect like a 100-page appendix with robustness checks where you show me what happens if you did every other thing for every judgment call you made. So if you had some cutoff at 25%, I want to see what would have happened if you'd made it 20 or 30 or 35 or 10 or what you don't like. And just, so you just have this appendix full of all these other graphs that show you that your estimates aren't actually based on you cherry picking the one result, right? And I feel like you just cannot publish a paper in economics anymore if you can't demonstrate that to reviewers. And I read a lot of other papers from other social science disciplines and it's like, they don't even have a graph. <laughs> You know, like, <laughs> like of the main result, much less those kinds of robustness checks. And I read those and I'm like, I have no idea what to do with this estimate. Who the heck knows? You know, and in psychology, there's been this big emphasis on like pre-registration and pre-analysis plans. And that has always struck me as not like I have friends who work in psychology and they're like, basically what winds up happening is it's not the theory driven, doesn't lead to the theory driven hypotheses that everyone hopes it will. People at the higher resource schools just go run a whole bunch of pilots, find the thing that works and then rerun that and pre-register that and rerun that one. 
you know, I mean, if you want replication, I guess that works, but it's not exactly the theory driven science we're hoping we want. And yeah. And the pre-analysis plans have just always, it's like, there's just with these observational studies in particular, so much learning that goes on along the way. And I totally understand the concerns about p-hacking and, you know, trying to like split the sample enough times that you find the one that the one group that you left stars for. And I think everyone's good reviewer, again, good researchers and good reviewers are always on the lookout for that. And I think it's, it's very difficult to publish papers if it seems like that's what you've been doing. But, uh, it's always struck me as bizarre that knowing how much learning goes into these types of papers where like you run your first regression and you're like, oh, that's really weird. I wonder why that is a positive I would expect. And then he's like, oh, that date, that variable that they changed the way they coded it in the middle of the sample or, you know, like you just like all this stuff that comes up along the way like that. And so the idea that the first regression I would have thought to run is somehow the most clean or the best one is just seems crazy to me. And so, you know, I talk to people who are more, you know, proponents of pre-analysis plan and they're like, oh, but you can update it, but that's not referees don't update. Yeah. I mean, I think like you get, you get accused of P like if you've changed your pre-analysis plan, that seems wrong. So anyway, I just, I really like that our approach is this. I just want to see it every other way for every judgment call you made. And it's very difficult that it just makes it really, it's, it's not, it doesn't make it impossible to come up with a result that, that that's not going to hold, but I think it minimizes it more than any other approach I've seen. And then ultimately, if the theory is correct, then we should see similar results hold in other contexts. And yeah, and that's where more work is always helpful. There's a bunch of different kinds of natural experiments, you know, policy lotteries, it's like uh, random judge assignment is used, used a lot here. Um, yeah, you've got, I guess you've got staggered rollouts is, mm-hmm. a, is another classic one. Or like, you know, the place that just got funding versus the place that just got rejected for funding, that kind of thing. Are there any methods that you've learned over time to give more weight to and to, be, and to believe more and other ones that you've learned maybe to be a little bit more, more skeptical of? They all have their pros and cons. So, I mean, the randomized controlled trial, people often refer to it as the gold standard, but it is not feasible in a huge number of contexts, especially public safety contexts. And so it's amazing to me how often I, you know, I say we need evaluation in some area and people are like, oh, we can't do an RCT. And it's like, we don't need an RCT. (laughs) There are other ways to try to measure the effectiveness of this program than randomizing. And I think that's not a message that's gotten out to most people. So let's see. So yeah, I mean, regression discontinuities. So that's the like, you just barely got in versus you just barely didn't based on a test score or something. Those provide really, I think, high quality causal estimates, but they're only applicable to the people who are right around the threshold. So if you have a threshold that is like a really weird population for some reason, then that's actually not all that useful. And so, you know, the best studies also make the case that that marginal population is important for some reason. Like it matters what happens to those, those individuals. Let's see, the staggered rollouts can be, can be good. I think those, you know, a kind of similar sort of design or like difference and difference or panel difference and difference designs where you have policies that are adopted in different times in different places. So in, in some ways, those are, those kinds of studies are, the most feasible in a lot of policy contexts, especially in the criminal justice context where you have a lot of variation place to place in the type of policy that's adopted. And so it's a good tool to have in the toolkit. That said, there's been a tremendous amount of econometric and methodological work in the last couple of years. It's been uh, trying my darndest to keep up with about these panel difference and difference designs and how 
and and the potential pitfalls and what the coefficient actually means and how it's kind of a weighted average of the different effects over different years and all the stuff that it's become much more complicated and we're going to start requiring a whole bunch more robustness checks in that appendix very soon. Uh, so. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I think they they all have their their pros and cons, but I think in general, I think of them all as being really good potential tools in the toolkit, especially when you're talking to policymakers about all the possible ways that you might be able to evaluate their program. Sometimes a randomized control trial works out, but it's good to have you know other options in your arsenal so that you can continue the conversation and and get a, a at least a pretty good estimate, even if it's not the perfect estimate. Are there any uh, telltale signs of like, you know, which, which papers are you should, you should give more weight to and which to less that maybe people don't appreciate or, or that kind of you've learned to, to use that you think you might want to pass on to us as, as readers of literature? So in general, I think that if someone can't explain clearly and intuitively to you as a smart layperson what the natural experiment is or like what the intuition of why the control group or comparison group is a good counterfactual for the treatment group, if they can't explain that clearly to you, then they don't fully understand it themselves. And I would be very wary of that. There are a lot of papers out there that just do like lots of really complex math and lots of really complex computations. And there's some crazy model or something. And and then the other side comes a number and you're like, what's the... You need a thought. Like yeah. I, I need people this to. This is like, a sausage factory. It's a sausage factory, exactly. I want it. It needs to be extremely transparent. And so, yeah, like I mean, I think in every good natural experiment paper like this, or a paper that's trying to mount, measure a causal effect, there is a thought experiment in mind where there is some sort of ideal experiment where you're randomizing in the lab that you're trying to approximate in the real world. And so, if you cannot talk through very clearly what your treatment group and what your comparison group is relative to that ideal experiment, then I, I would be very wary of that paper. And similarly, just, you know, I mean, I think most economists at this point, like we just use OLS in our regressions, like the fancy models and like all the hierarchical models that other fields are using. It's, I feel like, again, it just sort of adds, adds a bit of sausage making to the process where you really just use the draw a line. <laughs> You don't need it. So like if you've got a good, good experiment, put that stuff in the robustness check in the appendix, right? To show that all the fancy, you know, modeling, you basically get the same answer, but you should get the same thing from OLS. If that, if you get different answers, I think that's a problem. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. If if someone says cutting edge statistical method, I said like reach for your wallet. (laughs) (laughs) So cutting edge is not great with these things or or like the more complicated, the more, the more you worry about chicanery or people just not knowing what they're doing. Or people not knowing what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. I think there's just, yeah, I think the other big one that's sort of along the same lines is I think, uh, you know, again, like the standard in economics at this point is like, you should be able to show in a graph what your effect is and can't there's no way you can visualize an effect at some threshold or something or some change at a certain point in time. And like you see the coefficients drop at that. St- if there's not a graph like that in the paper, you should be more skeptical of the result because you just don't know. Like that average is, you want to see that the change happened when you think it's going to happen. And not that it's just, you know, maybe it happened two years after <laughs> after the policy change, but like it all goes into the average. So We've become big on graphs and transparency and just keeping it really simple in economics. And I think that's I think that's a good thing. All right. We've got two minutes left. I guess a lot of people feel incredibly depressed or, or pessimistic about things at the moment. It's hard to look at the news and and feel positive about it. 
I guess we usually try to end on a positive note on the show, but I guess I'll ask actually your your honest opinion. Are you optimistic about whether the US criminal justice system will be more fair or kind of less cruel and, and, and more effective in, 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 in 10 years time? Is it, is it possible to put a positive spin on this? Absolutely. I'm very optimistic on this. I think this is not only is it a golden age for research in this area. I mean, I think one of my favorite things about working in this space is that I routinely work with people who are both far more conservative and far more liberal than me. We're all at the same table trying to reach the same goal. This is like the one policy space I know of where there isn't a clear left and right on different policies. Everyone agrees the current system, almost everyone agrees the current system is far from what we want it to be. And I think that makes, and because there's no defined left and right in terms of the changes we want to make, means everyone's more open to just knowing what the evidence says. So this is a space where I feel very valued as a researcher, which, you know, as a researcher, I appreciate, but I think should give other people confidence too, that evidence is going to inform the the policy changes. Yeah, I think there's just, there has been tremendous momentum for criminal justice reform broadly in the United States, and that has been moving. This is all state and local, so we don't depend on the federal government making the changes. And the recent protests and conversations we've been having about policing are just, I think, the next step in that. I think there's going to be real change that comes out of this. And I don't know what it's going to be yet. And that's, you know, exciting. <laughs> but I'm very optimistic that 10 years from now, we will be living in a much, with a much better criminal justice system. Well, yeah, uh, I really hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thank, <laughs> thanks for everything you're doing to, to try to bring that about. My guest today has been uh, Jenna Ferdoliak. Thanks for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. If you'd like to hear more from Jennifer, you can, of course, subscribe to her show, Probable Causation. The latest two episodes are on the impact that police have, uh, firstly, when they're present on the streets, uh, and secondly, uh, when they're posted into primary or high schools. Other episodes have covered racial bias in police investigations, uh, the impact of street lighting, prison bail reform, and youth employment programs as an approach to violence reduction. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts are available on our website and made by Zaki Allhack. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.